Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. If I had to describe one characteristic of how the mindset of an academic researcher differs from others, it would be that while the rest of us spend the majority of our time searching for examples that confirm what we already believe, the successful researcher is never happier than when she encounters something that rejects her initial assumptions. A great example of this is the story of UC San Diego psycholinguist Victor Ferreira's careful investigations of how English speakers use the clarifying word that which led him to starkly confront the fact that many of our basic assumptions of what we're doing when we're communicating with each other turn out to require a rather substantial overhaul, which is precisely the sort of thing that any ambitious researcher is hoping will happen. My parents, I believe, initially were like many of the members of the Portuguese community in Winnipeg, which was the having the life approach of saying, I am going to go to Canada, I'm going to work as hard as I can, I'm going to save lots of money, both parents are going to work, we're never going to go out for dinner or anything, we're going to save all the money we can and go back to Portugal and live like a king. That was always the expression, I'm going to live like a king. Um, And I guess my mom, uh, right around when, shortly after I was born or something like that, uh, maybe before then, probably before then, said, uh, apparently approached my dad and said, we're not doing that. You know, I'm not going to, you know, do all that, move to Canada, leave my parents to move to Canada, and then um, only move back to Portugal to have our kids, you know, leave us. And so they, at that point, transitioned to the melting pot mode and assimilated into Canada, moved to the suburbs, assimilated into Canada, and uh, sort of laid the groundwork for my sister to go to university, um, and then for me after that, so. And your sister went, so your sister was... As I've just been led to understand, <laughs> she was she was the the leading the leading edge the the inspiring figure in terms of psycholinguistics. So how did that tell, tell me about that? Where did she go and how did she inspire you? So she um, so as is you know implicit in what I've said so far is that my parents as uh, as immigrants to Canada were working class folks. My dad was a construction worker. My mom worked in both the sewing industry and as a custodian over her life. Um, and uh, But my sister did really, really well in school, and so it became sort of, when they had moved out to the suburbs, the high school they went to said, you know, you're going to go to university, that's what people who do well like you do, um, you have done do. And so, um, so she went to the University of Manitoba, did really well there, and did an honors project with um, a psycholinguist, a gentleman named Murray Singer, um, who is a very strong in the what's called text comprehension, so how you understand passages of texts and draw inferences from one sentence to another. So she did a project with him, and because he did, she did well, the idea was you should go to graduate school and do this stuff, you're a natural at it. Mm-hmm. So she got advice from him to apply and eventually go to the University of Massachusetts, which is a very strong school at that time, still is strong. Which, which one? Which, uh, Amherst. You, you, you mastered Amherst. And, mm-hmm. and when she was doing her graduate work there when she started, how, how old were you? And, so she must have started in about 1982, so I was 12. 
so she went to, you know, to grad school at UMass. Right. Uh, they were one of the best, strongest schools in the world, especially in reading and eye tracking. It was, uh, and finished up in 1987, her PhD, and then took a job at the University of Alberta. Um, and so this is just as I was finishing up high school. And um, so was this a postdoc, or was this an assistant professorship? That she she went straight, straight to an assistant professorship. Okay, yeah. so she's an assistant professor at the University of Alberta yeah. in psycholinguistics. Yep. She's had this uh, very accomplished uh, beginning to her career, mm -hmm. uh, and and you, as a young form formative <laughs> youth, uh, as, a, as a as a dynamic and creative young person looking up to your sister is inspired and you think, or is it something completely different? It's, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, I think it's how these things often go. I'm gonna do a quick aside here. I used to teach the honors um, seminar in our department and part of that class, the junior seminar, we would bring, we would ask the faculty members in our department and uh, in other departments if they're doing related work to come in and tell us about their research so that the honors students could hear about it sure. and potentially work with them in a, on their honors project. But as a sort of icebreaker, kind of like this, I would ask all the, the people coming in to tell us their story of how they got into their research. It's very useful for the students. Now they can hear, oh, that's how people get interested in what they right. do. And what's remarkable is that I would say at least seven out of 10 stories um, involve serendipity or random chance or whatever. There's one guy, a guy named Mike Cole, who is in the communication department here, retired from the communication department, who's one of the leading people in sort of a Vygotskyan approach to language and communication. He does what he does because he got out of an elevator on the wrong floor. He, the elevator doors opened, there was a flyer in front of him that said, it was like 1960 or something, a flyer that said, you know, go to Moscow. And he's like, go to Moscow in 1960 during the USSR? I'm not missing that chance. Wow. And took so, the... So I don't know anything about what Vygotsky and uh, methods are. Does it have anything to do with elevators? Just <laughs> Nothing to do with elevators. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's just because... So it's a complete coincidence. Total coincidence. <laughs> and so, and then, you know, he went to Moscow, learned this approach, and became one of the U.S.'s leading... Um, persons in this area, researchers in this area. So, uh, it's power of advertising, really, it's a testimony. That's right true, too, that's true, too. Uh, and so, so many cases are random like this. And in my case, it's kind of like that, too. Um, in high school, I pictured that I was going to be some sort of a scientist someday, um, and I was taking my AP physics course and my AP chemistry course. Um, and halfway through taking my, literally when I was taking my AP physics exam is when I found a crisis of, of life. <laughs> uh, I was calculating the, you know, solving some physics problem, calculating the electrical sure. field in a solenoid or something like that, right. and doing the right hand rule. Right. Um, and I just remember halfway through solving this problem on the AP exam, I thought to myself, I don't care what the electrical field is inside this solenoid. I really don't. <laughs> right in the middle of your AP. Right in the middle of the AP. So I finished the exam and I did all right. That was fine. Um, How did you do on that question? Do you remember? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's when I decided that I didn't want to do something like physics or chemistry that was quite impersonal. And so I didn't know. There's nothing about solenoids. You know, anti-solenoid <laughs> anti or anything like that. Uh, not as far as I know. They're as interesting as anything else, which is to say, Interesting from a, from a sort of precision standpoint, the fact that you can, this was a, a, a situation where you could measure things very accurately right. and characterize them very accurately, and that's, part of, that's what's very admirable about hard sciences like physics. But I just didn't feel it was quite as relevant. I didn't feel it was quite as, as interesting to me. Around the same time, what had happened was that, uh, this is gonna now even seem more um, uh, 
bizarre, possibly. Um, my brother-in-law is also a cognitive scientist. His name is John Henderson. He does um, vision science. Are there rules in your family? That you <laughs> this is what you do. Uh, it's always explainable. They met in grad. My sister yeah, and my yeah, brother-in-law sure. met in graduate school at UMass, um, and he was finishing up his thesis when uh, he he and my sister came to Canada. Came to Winnipeg for a uh, for a Christmas holiday, and so he was he was on. This is my memory of it. He was on the bed that he, they were staying in, reading through his thesis document, and I was this little kid trying to check out this guy who was going to be marrying my sister potentially. And so I said, "Hey, what are you working on?" He said, "Well, I'm working on my thesis." And then he explained his thesis, which is about reading, skilled reading, and using mm -hmm. an eye tracker to do skilled reading. He worked in part with the, the gentleman that I mentioned, Keith Rayner, who's here mm -hmm. now. Um, <clears throat> and so he explained what his thesis research was about, and I was like this is amazing. You can actually do scientific research on people. I thought that science was about solenoids. solenoids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, uh, and so that was kind of my, because you know, high schools don't typically have experimental psychology courses or cognitive science courses. They right. might now, but they certainly didn't when I was I'm not, I'm not sure they do, but they certainly didn't, because I think we're the same generation. So, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so that was my first exposure to the science of behavior, if you will. And so I was like, oh, that was kind of interesting. And then I had the crisis of confidence and the crisis of life in the, in the AP physics exam. So the, this, this meeting, meeting uh, your, your brother-in-law, this happened before the exam? Was this a latent effect somehow that it was stored I, in your neurons and then in the, right in the middle of a solenoid? <laughs> it like, well, I don't know that it, it quite, it was evolved that it more evolved. I don't think it actually sort of burst in any sort of way. Um, that I had this thing where I decided I don't think I like this physics stuff very much. I had applied off to college and I had placed, you know, at, at many Canadian universities, McGill um, certainly was one of them, you applied directly to a faculty. And right. In that case, the Faculty of Science I had applied to. So I knew I was going to do something in the scientific area. Um, and then the next thing that happened was uh, that the all of us, my sister, brother-in-law, me, my mom, uh, we're on a vacation together, and you also might remember from our generation, they used to have those those course catalogs things that they actually used to print out and, and say, mail to you before the right. you arrived at university. They don't print them out anymore. They don't um, print anything out, thank goodness. They don't print anything out, <laughs> sure. Um, and so we were on this vacation, and I had this course catalog with me so I could pick what courses I was going to be taking as I arrived as a, as a freshman. And my sister was then a, a starting assistant professor at the University of Alberta and did what I would do and what you would probably do when you see a course catalog. It's like, oh, let me see that. And ripped it out of my hand and flipped to the psychology section and uh, saw, very, oh, you got to take this course. you got to take this course. Um, and saw a few names. Oh, this is a great person. You should you know, try to take a course from, from him or her and take a class. So that got me signed up for a couple of courses or angling for a couple of courses that I might take. So that was the next step. And then the next big thing that happened was, a, was the Lulu, which is that um, at a conference that I now go to um, every year, um, when I was a freshman, I wasn't at the conference then, but my sister went to this conference, and bumped into a call, a, one of our colleagues who was then a professor at McGill. He's now at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, and uh, uh, she just said, hey, my little brother's at McGill, and he thinks he might be getting interested in psychology. Is there any chance he could volunteer in your lab? And so my impression is that kind of as a favor, he's like, oh, geez, okay, sure, why not? You're a colleague. Um, and so then I remember, you know, she sends me an email on, you know, getting it on one of those old terminals. I remember reading the email saying, yeah, Seid Mark Seidenberg is interested in having you as a student, um, as a, a volunteer in the lab. Why don't you go talk to him? So I, one day I timidly knock on his door and I was expecting him to say, here, you can 
here's a bunch of data for you to code, you know, right. go through this and do a bunch of grunt work. Right. And that would have been perfectly reasonable. But what he said was, um, uh, here's three papers that I want to do a project on. So go to the library and get these papers and read them. And when you're done reading them, come back. And I suspect he thought I was never going to come back again. Um, but I did, went to the library. We had to actually go to the library and find the journal sure, and sure. photocopy cool. the articles. Yeah, exactly. Uh, photocopied the articles. And I remember calling my sister while reading these things. I was like, you know, what's, what's all this statistics? What's this F thing? You know, um, and then I knocked on his door again and he said, okay, well, I'm thinking about doing a study that goes like this and basically had me set up the study. And wow. Yeah, it was quite remarkable. Did he um, do this with everyone or was it just because I, of your sister? Or? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think it happened all that much back then that, that an undergraduate student would, would knock on your door and say, I want to be in your lab. And the studies were, were about what exactly? What sorts of things were you doing? So Mark's studies still studies uh, what we call word recognition, which is almost the it, it's it's almost like pattern recognition when it comes to indiv reading individual words. So if I show you the word pint and I ask you to read that aloud, I time how long it takes you to, to do that to read it aloud, and I know very. Um, precise properties about that word, and I try to sort of link the, the properties of the word to how long it takes you to say the word aloud. Um, and pint, for example, is a word that's relatively hard to say because it's not pronounced how it should be pronounced given its spelling. It should right. be pronounced pint. pint. I guess. Right. Yeah, and there are words like hint and mint that are that are pronounced in the opposite way, and the existence of hint and mint pronounced in a, in a different way actually slows your ability to, to say enough. pint when, right. you, when you want to read In pint. terms of pattern recognition, as you were saying, so you're getting out of your mind groove or whatever it is. Yep. And so uh, that was kind of along the lines of the study that he wanted me to do. Um, he wanted to do a study based on a work of somebody who got his PhD here, a guy named Robert Glushko, um, who's now a, a a good friend at the university, especially the Department of Cognitive Science. Um, and so he wanted me to follow up on some studies that he had done on analogy and word recognition, the idea that maybe part of what you're doing when you're recognizing words is, is based on analogies to other words. You're drawing analogies to other so words. So you were starting to get interested in this as an undergraduate. What, what level undergraduate is this? This was a freshman. As a freshman. So you were really into the whole psycholinguistic structure of language, psychology, right from, right from the get-go. In November of my freshman year, and mainly because like I said, my sister bumped into this guy at a conference and said, hey, do you mind if he if my brother, little brother volunteers in your lab? So I started with him doing that project. Um, I don't think the experiment worked, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, that's, that's knowledge as well. That's right? knowledge as well. Um, and because this was 1988, um, I, as a kid, played around with computers a lot, you know, 82, 83, when personal computers started to um, show up in schools. Um, and so I learned how to program first basic, then Pascal, then C or something like that. And so I started to help out in this lab and helping out with the grad students. And uh, I remember the specific issue that came up was they were doing these word recognition experiments where a subject would see a word, read it as quickly as they can, over and over and over again. Um, and so I was helping somebody set up an experiment and I said, these words all appear in the same order all the time. That, that doesn't seem like a good idea. You could imagine. Sure, you'd, you're priming people for what? Yeah, I and mean, you'd get carryover. If this word was hard, that's going to make right. you slower than the next word and that has nothing to do with that next word. I said, shouldn't they be in random order? And the grad student said, yeah, they should be in random order, but the program we're using can't do it. And so I remember just saying, okay. Then a little while later, I said, I, I know we can do this. We can write a front end front end program that generates randomly ordered right. lists and then feeds that to right. this program. And, 
Uh, so I suspect that what happened at that point is that the grad students got together with uh, with Mark Seidenberg, the, the faculty member, and said, hey, this guy's got some skills that might be kind of useful in the lab. I think you should keep him hanging around. So ended up working with Mark the whole time I was an undergraduate. Um, in fact, it got a little more interesting than that. He left for the University of Southern California halfway through my time as an undergraduate, and uh, he... Um, so, you know, NSERC in Canada, the funding agency, uh, they have these undergraduate research scholarships that right. for 2000 bucks back then you'd get in the summer if you applied for one of these and got it. And so he said, uh, hey, get one of these NSERC undergraduate fellowships, summer undergraduate fellowships, and I'll fly you down to LA for a, for a summer and we can do work down here. Some serious motivation there. <laughs> there was some serious motivation, so I applied. Happily, I got it, and, and he did. He flew me down to LA, and I hung out in LA as a 21-year-old uh, for six weeks. Um, so... It was a lot of fun too. So, so you got your first taste of California. And actually we did take a day trip down to San Diego and so I met a lot of the people who would be my colleagues yeah, seven, eight years later, I guess, at that wow. point. So. But, I, but what's fascinating to me is this idea that you, your interests were piqued in this particular area from really quite a young age. Um, and it's somewhat counterintuitive because when you started off telling me that your, your sister was a psycholinguist, I had assumed that the arrows of causality were working in a somewhat different way. But anyway, she was involved and uh, at some level. She uh, basically... An incidental level. Uh, and, yeah, and she, she basically years. nudged and she opened doors. Right. Um, and... Uh, this going back to the the fact that I asked my honor students to come through and um, the, asked the professors coming through the honors class to tell their story and how often it involves randomness or serendipity. This makes me. This is actually something I bring up with students all the time when they're they're worried about what careers they should go into and how how do I know what the right career is for me. And I'm pretty convinced that that's just the wrong way of framing the that issue. That really careers are pretty broadly. Um, have a lot of within them that 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 a person can do, and uh, when you land in a place, it's not that hard to often, I think, to to find a niche within that that makes it so that it fits with your personality and the things and, and your passion, presumably, because your passion, th yeah. that's that's something that has to happen. You have to have that fit when you're interested. You've been doing broadly defined these sorts of, uh, you've been exploring these sorts of ideas for a long time, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't seem like your passion is abating. Uh, no, yeah, but I think part of that is, I, I suspect that I would have been, I would have been just as passionate or as interested in all of these things, in things, whether I was a psycholinguist or whether I was a vision scientist, it would have to be something that... Not solenoids. Not solenoids, that's right. <laughs> and, that's, and that's actually what I was just about to say, is that it, it needs to be something that can combine a few things together, which is, um, I mean, some of the things that I really, really, really love about doing cognitive science type research is uh, doing an experiment is not just about developing a better measuring device or um, being more precise or, uh, you know, some brute force thing like that. You really have to come up with a, a clever way to try to ask a question that indirectly hints at what the, the answer is. Um, uh, when I used to teach intro, Introduction to Psychology, I would spend half of a lecture talking about these really clever experiments done by um, Saul Sternberg a bunch of years ago, mainly to get across the idea that, you know, Sternberg recognized that you could only you could only report four of these letters, and is that because you only got four of the letters? Is that because you exactly. got all twelve and only re could report four before they disappeared? Right. And he had to come up with this really clever procedure because you can't 
put a microscope on the brain and say, oh, look, there's the four letters right there. Right, and that, that's, a, that's a great segue, really, into, into your research, because when you're looking at um, the structure of language communication and who's responsible for uh, language to the extent that, uh, who's doing the work? Is it the work of the listener? Is it the work of the speaker? Is the speaker saying something in such a way so as to make it maximally clear and comprehensible to the listener. Mm -hmm. you, you, you can test these sorts of things, but off the top of my head when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, well, how do you actually test these <laughs> ideas? And so the, the mechanisms to test them require uh, very careful, I would imagine, very careful investigations as to what sort of questions you can ask, how do you set up that particular environment. So it's not just a question of coming up with ideas of what sort of things you want to test, it's also very concretely, how do you actually I do it? So. How do you move forward? So, so I want to explore that in more detail, but before I do, rather than me try to stumble my way through to <laughs> a, a summary of, uh, of what's going on uh, with respect to responsibility of communication and intentionality and all these sorts of things, mm -hmm. it's a lot more reasonable for you to give a high-level <laughs> description um, of, uh, of those aspects of your research or contemporary research right now. So, okay, so like a high-level view of, of sort of how I view an aspect of the major part of my research. Program. Well, the paper that you gave me, for example, mm -hmm. that, that I that I maybe we can just start start okay. with that. So my sense. So let, let me start off. Let me do it in an inverse way. Okay. And what in, what intrigued me uh, is perhaps twofold about uh, what I read uh, of your research. So the first thing that intrigued me was the idea that we can actually think about what is going on with language structurally because. I must admit, I took this completely for granted. I thought, wow, if I'm having a conversation with you, of course, my job is to communicate with you. And of course, I'm thinking about what's the best way that I can say something so that you can understand it. So I just assumed off the top of my head that uh, my motivation in forming every word that I form and pronouncing every word that I pronounce is done in such a way that you can actually understand it. And what you're saying is that's actually not true. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit more complicated than that, as it turns out. Yep. Um, so that to me is surprising. Was, or it certainly was very surprising. And so that was the first point. And the second point was, even if that's not true, well, gosh, how do you actually measure that sort of thing anyway? How okay. can you even say that with any assurance? So that's, that's my level of perplexity and, uh, and interest and intrigue when, when I read some of your work. So tell me why that's not true and tell me where the complexity lies, where, where my simplification lies. <laughs> so maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll continue with a biographical sort of approach and, and do it that way. So the, the line of research that sort of became my major line of research and is starting to, I'm, I think the lab is starting to transition into a new set of questions, which we can talk about at some point for sure. Um, but the major line of research through my career so far began with my dissertation. Um, as I think it often does in, in academics' lives. Um, and this, it all started when I was in some talk and I was sitting in a chair at the edge of the room and my advisor at the time, this guy named Gary Dell, who's a uh, fantastic guy and a professor at the University of Illinois, um, was sitting in front of me and someone said something, whether it was the speaker in the, in the room or whatever, that made both of us have the same thought at the same time, which was, um, so there are, there's a particular sentence structure where a speaker can, you're gonna remember, this was in the major part of the paper that, that um, I sent to you. Uh, there are particular sentence structures where a speaker can use a that. Um, and so a sentence like, 
the teacher knew that you were going to be late for class versus the teacher knew you were going to be late for class. Two very similar sentences, and if I hadn't cued you to the fact that the that is the thing that's potentially different, you probably wouldn't even have noticed those two right. sentences were different from one another. Uh, what's interesting about the fact that the speaker has to use a that in a sentence like that is that that mean, this is terrible, I'm going to be, every, every time I say a that. I, was gonna say, I thought you were going to say what's interesting about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and it would mean two things. Um, so what's interesting about, what's valuable about the fact that there are sentences like this is the word itself is practically meaningless, it's very inconspicuous, but nonetheless, the, you, the fact that that sentence requires for you, that you have mentioned it or not means that your brain made the decision. Yes, this sentence requires a that or will have a that. This sentence won't have a that. And so that's perfect. Now we can use that to say, <laughs> you have a litmus test. We have a, it, it's, I almost see it like a, it's our fruit fly, it's our drosophila, right? If I can figure out what are the factors that compel a speaker to say a that in sentences or not, or not, that's going to. Oh boy, I'm getting conspicuous. Just, yeah, getting just just know. just speak English. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. we, we do use that word in all sorts of different contexts. <laughs> yeah, as, as you certainly know. And there are many kinds of that's too, which just makes it even worse. So the fact that that needs to have been said or not. Uh, if we can figure out what made a speaker use it or not use it, that's going to tell me something about the way that the sentence um, construction mechanism works, the, the, the part of our brains that's responsible for putting sentences together. So the thought that popped into my advisor and my heads at the same time, respective heads at the same time, was, so in the sentence that I, the example that I gave you was, the teacher knew you were going to go to the, you were going to be late. Um, there are certain... That type of sentence, without the that, actually contains a momentary ambiguity. It is it momentarily um, comes across as if it's going to mean something different and be structured differently than it ends up being um, structured. And it's because if I said the teacher knew you, you at that point naturally comes across as if it's the direct object of the verb. Right. If, if no. the sentence stopped there, it would be the teacher knew you, which is a completely different kettle yep. of fish than right. the first example. Yep. But that's not what the sentence does. What it does is the teacher knew you were going to be late. And so to get to put this in linguistic terms, you isn't the direct object of the verb no. You is the, is the subject of an upcoming verb, right. were in this case. Uh, so the absence of the that allows that momentary misinterpretation to occur. Uh, if you say the that, you block that. So the teacher knew that you were going to be late. If I went, the teacher knew that you, you can't stop. Right. The you has to be the subject. No, ambigu uh, no ambiguity whatsoever. Okay. And so the thought that occurred to my advisor and I was, well, maybe that's why speakers say a that. And if we can test that, if we can give speakers sentences where in one case it will be ambiguous without the that, and in the other case it will be unambiguous even without the that, the prediction is speakers should be more likely to say the, th the that in sentences where it can serve as a disambiguator yeah. versus the one that not. Right. Yeah. I, so, so, so my understanding is, uh, again, referencing the bigger picture, uh, this is all part of the thesis that when I'm talking to you, I'm trying to be as clear as possible and communicate things as, as unambiguously as possible. Yep. So me as a speaker, 
If I say, uh, if I'm thinking, oh my goodness, ambiguity coming, ambiguity coming, I'm going to make sure to put in sufficient clarity to, to make sure that things are disambiguate. I'm not sure if that's a verb, but I'm going it to. Is. <laughs> we use it all the time. <laughs> I don't use disambiguation. I wasn't sure if you yep. actually used the verb. Anyway, if I'm going disambiguate to, something. Yep. I, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, uh, ensure that, that, that this phrase has maximum clarity because I know Vic is on the other end and he's going to try to. Uh, to parse that and I'm going to make it as easy as possible for him. So that all makes complete sense and that's exactly what I thought that I was doing all the time. But And what's interesting is that's what I thought was going to happen as well and that's what huh. my advisor thought as well. We said, let's do this experiment. And right. so the contrast was the coach knew you were going, or sorry, the, the, I switched examples here. The teacher knew you were going to be late versus the teaching, te the teacher knew I was going to be late. And the key difference between those two sentences is just the pronoun you versus I. You happens to be ambiguous between this direct object role and, and subject role. I is not. I has to be a subject. Right, because otherwise it would be the teacher near me. Exactly. So if the that serves a disambiguating function, if that's why speakers say it, is to block the possibility of a misinterpretation on the part of a listener, then I should say the coach knew that you, but I shouldn't bother to say the coach knew that I, because that's already unambiguous without that. We did three experiments that we were sure were going to show this effect. None of these experiments showed this effect. Um, in every case, the, the level of that usage in a bunch of sentences that had U's in them versus a bunch of sentences that had I's in them, and then we did diff different ways of manipulating ambiguity like that. The level of that mentioned were within, was within 2% of one another over and over again. Um, and even with 96 subjects and 48 sentences each, which is a really powerful experiment, if there's a difference to be found, usually you can find it with, a, with that much data. It was not there. Um, and so we thought, hmm, what's going on here? Along the way, we had done another experiment where what we had manipulated was whether the first subject of the sentence and the second subject of the sentence were the same or different. And it was still I's and U's because we were still testing this ambiguity idea. So this was these were sentences like, um, I knew I was going to miss the flight. You knew you were going to miss your flight. You knew I was going to miss the flight. I knew you were going to miss the flight. And for linguistic reasons, only one of those four is potentially ambiguous. And so the, the theory that says that speakers say the that's to make their sentences as, e as easy as possible for their listeners to understand predicts you should say that's most right. in that one sentence. Um, that's not what happened. What ended up happening was the two sentences that repeat their pronouns, I knew that I, you knew that you, speakers said that's significantly less often compared to I knew you, I knew that you, and you knew that I. And that led us to the idea that what's happening isn't that speakers are trying to fashion their sentences, generally speaking, to make that, those sentences as easy as possible for their listeners to understand. Maybe what's going on is, well, what could be a difference between I knew that I, you knew that I? Well, when the pronouns repeat, that second pronoun is actually going to be easier for you to think of and say aloud because it's the same word you just said a couple of words earlier. It's referring to the same entity that you referred to a couple of words earlier compared to you knew that I. That second word is going to be harder to retrieve because it's not a repetition. It's not referring to the same thing. Let me just ask you a question about practice of this. So we're talking about statements that people are saying. You have expectations of people using that in a particular phrase uh, or not using that in a particular phrase based upon, uh, based upon whether or not it would be appropriate for clarity and not. But 
How, how are you getting these people to actually say that? Mm. How, are you, how is that actually working? These people are saying these things, but explain that to me. How, how you get them to reiterate these phrases and remember or insert it or, or what have you. So this turns out to be one of the things that's actually I find to be a lot of fun about the specific area that I study, which is language production. So how is it that people form sentences and convey their, their um, intentions accurately? Which is that you have to you have to try to figure out a way to compel people to say the kinds of sentences that you need to be able to ask the questions that you're asking. And so if you're trying to get them to say sentences where the, the word after the that is I versus you, how do you do that? Um, for, for that experiment, it turns out that it was safe to rely on the fact that people actually have quite poor memory for exactly how a word is phrased. When you, when you ask people to, if you say a sentence to somebody and say, say that sentence back to me, what they remember is the gist of the sentence quite well, and they don't remember exactly what words they said. Would you wait any time, or would you just say it to them and then have them say it right back to you immediately? How would so, that work? So you actually have to break up what, what we sometimes call verbatim memory or, or an actual sort of perceptual form of memory. So, if, so in fact, what happened in these experiments was that speakers would see three sentences on the screen. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is the one that we care about, and the other two are just filler sentences that, we just, that I just made up based on whatever I saw on TV at the moment. Um, and they would read those three sentences one at a time, then we'd take them away, uh, then I would show them the first few words of one of the three sentences in random order so they couldn't sort of anticipate which one they'd get, and then they say the sentence back. And so if you read, the teacher knew that you were going to be late for class, um, and then you read two other sentences, and then later on you see the teacher now say that whole sentence back, uh, people's memory for the that is quite poor. They're about 65, 70% accurate. It's, it's above chance, so they will say it more when it was there. And so less you have to filter it out a little bit. You have to take that into consideration a little bit. I you guess. take into consideration, as it turns out, that ends up being what we call a main effect. So overall, people say will have will say the that more when it was there, and they'll leave it out when it wasn't there. Right. But they do that equally in all of the interesting experimental conditions. And so if, it's, if the memory for the that isn't interacting with, isn't also related to the other factors that we're interested in, then we can say it's a separate independent influence. Right. So we can partial it out, basically. Right. So in those experiments, we just gave people the sentences to read, uh, take them away, say them back to us, and measure whether they say that in a sentence. Um, and like I said, they pay no attention to the potential ambiguity of the sentence when they are going to say the sentence back. They say that that's equally, regardless of whether the sentence is going to be ambiguous or not. What they are sensitive to is how easy or hard it is to retrieve the word after the that. When the word is easy to retrieve, they tend to leave the that out. When the word is hard to retrieve, they tend to mention the that. Um, so that was a thing and, we... And by, and by retrieving, what, what, what do you mean? Um, in this case, we just what that basically means is uh, the way that we envision the sentence production process as working is you begin with some notion, what we call a message, of the idea that you want to convey. Then you go through a process of what we sometimes call grammatical encoding, which is retrieving the linguistic features that you think can convey that message. So that's figuring out what the words are, figuring out what the structure is, the sentence structure is that you're going to use, figure out what the sounds are for those things so you can sound it out and shuffle that off, shuffle that off to articulators so you can move your lips and create a sound wave that someone else can you know, have impinge on their eardrums and they can um, interpret that as a sentence. So in this context, the, the word retrieve is, given the message that we planted in people's heads by having them read the sentence initially, uh, they have to retrieve the individual words that can convey that message. Um, and so um, 
and so in I'm trying to think of one of the experiments that sort of gets us across. Well, the repetition one sort of gets us across. The fact that the the pronoun that's after the that co is what we say is is co-referential with is refers to the same thing as the initial pronoun makes that pronoun a quicker thing for the system to decide that's the that's the word that I need to use. And that's what compels speakers, we argue, to leave the that out. Because you've already said that. You've used I once before, so in a sense you're 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 eventually primed to say I again somehow. That, that's basically the idea. Or another analogy of sort of getting a sense of <clears throat> ease versus difficulty of retrieval um, is to point to situations where we have massive difficulty of retrieval, which is when you have a word on the tip of your tongue. All right, so if I ask you who is your 11th grade physics teacher, you might think, oh gosh, uh, and you'll know you know it. If I suggest names, you'll know that those are incorrect. That's a situation where retrieval has become so difficult that you actually have to stop what you're doing. And, and right. so that's an extreme, but we, one of the things we know is that these things vary on a continuum. Words right. like the and cat are very easy to retrieve, and words right. like you know sextant and umbrella are relatively more difficult to retrieve. Unless, unless you're a mariner. Unless you're a mariner <laughs> or it rains a lot. Yeah. But, uh, and, and you do things like this in a somewhat different context, but at least in the piece that I read, uh, in, in terms of retrieval, you also do different sorts of experiments by, by having one word that stands out from a whole bunch of other words. There was an example you gave hmm. when you have, uh, you're, you're asking people to repeat back writer, author, oh. uh, whatever it is, <laughs> that one. Letter, something yeah. like that. And then, and then you would have the same three words that were roughly synonymous or related, and you would have golfer as the fourth word. Yep. And, and so there is a sense that one of them stands out a little bit, a little bit more than the other, and retrieval is easier with golfer than it would yep. be with, with writer. Right? So it's the same, roughly the same sort of processes. Yeah, so in fact, that's the most direct demonstration of this effect of the ease of retrieval on the mention of that. So, that experiment took advantage of a phenomenon that we've known about in experimental psychology since the 1960s called proactive interference. Proactive interference refers to when um, you find it more and more difficult to retrieve, to, to re remember words that are similar in meaning to previous words. And the intuition, I think, is relatively clear. The idea is that if you have to remember a list of, of things that include writer, author, poet, biographer, that by the time you get to biography, you're like, okay, another writing person, oh, not, not writer, oh, not poet, I've already said those things. And so that the fourth thing suffers from what some people call cue saturation, that the retrieval cue of people who write gets saturated and makes it harder to retrieve that last thing. Um, so um, in that experiment, uh, this was an experiment done with me and an undergraduate student at the time, a woman named Carla Frado. So we did this experiment where um, we had speakers say sentences like the writer, the poet, and the bio the writer, the poet, and the author felt that the biographer was a crazy person, or the writer, the poet, and the biographer felt that the golfer was a crazy person. And the idea is that golfer is easier to retrieve in the context of writer, poet, and biographer because it stands out. It doesn't have those same cues. And what the experiment showed is a systematic difference that speakers were more likely to say the that, they were less likely to say the that with golfer, the easier to retrieve one, right. than with writer, the more difficult to retrieve. And so the idea, as I understand it, is you're using this that as, as you call it, a syntactic pause. Yep. So it's this notion that, again, I'm fixated on speaking. I, as a speaker, am thinking, okay, I've got this information, blah, 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 blah. Oh, what is that again? So I'll put that word, I'll put the that in there as I'm searching my, my mind to come up with the, the phrase that I want to have. 
And so, again, I'm not doing this because I particularly care <laughs> what you're getting away from this conversation. I'm doing it because I have something to say, and uh, I want to, I can't say it very quickly because I have, to, I have to think about it. So all of these experiments that you're doing are building towards this conclusion that when we're having an exchange of ideas, it's really uh, the, the, the speaker is more fixated on himself and speaking mm -hmm. yeah. rather rather than being concerned about your comprehension, yeah. which is again very, very counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah, so that's basically where this whole line of research got off the ground. The initial insight that I was mentioned, talking about that my advisor and I had, which proved to be wrong, um, that speakers would say that that more to make their sentences unambiguous, is based on this intuition that, that you were just describing, which is that we feel as though our job as speakers is to construct sentences that are as easy as possible for my listener to understand. And so if I have a choice between one that's easier for my listener and more difficult for my listener, the system presumably um, was designed or has evolved or developed to choose the easier one and thereby make, make me better at my job of, of having you, you know, understand me. Right. So, uh, question. Mm. So, I understand now if I'm, if I'm someone listening to this, I say, okay, I get this whole thing with the, with the golfer and the writer and I'm searching for the right word. But we were, before we were talking about ambiguity, mm -hmm. basic ambiguity and, and inserting it for grammatical reasons and so forth, whether I would put into that or whether I wouldn't put into that. Why is it the case that for, to, to alleviate grammatical, uh, why is something which is less ambiguous, why is that necessarily harder for us to say? In other words, so w why is it the case, I'm not saying this terribly well, but this is the problem with your field, you know, you have to <laughs> talk about language really wrecks you. <laughs> and I think I'm too focused on what, whether you can understand what I'm saying rather than whether I'm saying it the right way, so I'm doing it all the wrong way. But it, it, if, if the argument is that, uh, that I'm not actually worried about ambiguity for you, I'm just worried about whether it's easier for me to say or whether it's harder for me to say. So the result is that I'm actually giving you stuff which is more ambiguous than less ambiguous because I'm not, it doesn't really make any, any I'm not worried about that, I'm just worried about whether it's easier. Why am I giving you the stuff that's more ambiguous? <laughs> Why is that easier for me to say okay. than the stuff which is, uh, would be less ambiguous? So, so as it turns out, it, it Ambiguity and difficulty for the speaker are probably largely independent of one another. So it's not that I actually aim for things that are potentially ambiguous because that'll be easier for me. It's that I'm kind of not paying attention to certain forms of ambiguity when I'm trying to choose whether to say that or not, whether to um, put a certain what we call prosody on my sentence where I lengthen certain phrases or shorten certain phrases because that can serve a disambiguating function. Because if I say, uh, while the man drank, water fell on the floor, right? That big pause there indicates to you don't think the water is the thing that's being sure. drunk. Um, so the idea is, and it's easy, it's easy to end up overstating it. So let me sort of characterize, I think, the, the big picture of the, what it ends up being called the division of labor. Um, as a speaker, the intuition, the intuition we have is that as a speaker, my job is to, con to construct a sentence that conveys my ideas as easily as, and efficiently, and that, so that they can be understood as easily and efficiently as possible. And as unambiguously. And, uh, and ambiguity is something that blocks easy comprehension, so I should avoid ambiguity. Um, the reason that intuition, according to this framework, um, is perhaps incorrect is because it turns out that as a speaker, I've got a pretty big job all on my own. That 
you know, what I have to do as a speaker every time I formulate a sentence is come up with the message that I want to get across. We'll call that message formulation. Search my vocabulary, which has between 30,000 and 80,000 words, depending on exactly what you count as a word, for just those words that will work. And if you pull out a dictionary that has 30,000 words, it's about this thick. So imagine searching that for the seven words that you want, right? That's a very efficient process, but nonetheless, from a computational perspective, is a, is a difficult one. Figure out the correct grammatical ordering of those words so that I convey who's doing what to whom, and it's a valid grammatical structure in my language. Figure out how to sound out the words. Figure out how to impose this prosody on the sentence, uh, all at a rate of about two to three words per second, right? So 300 milliseconds per word. So there's lots going on. There's a lot going on. And then to additionally say, oh, and the system should evaluate whether an alternative that you haven't formulated is easier to understand than the one that you're about to formulate requires you to base requires the system to represent both the utterance you're, you're you're formulating to spit out and that alternative that you weren't even formulating it was just some other form with or without of that for example as a, as the alternative do the comparison of those two utterances in terms of a process you're not engaging in namely understanding the utterances that's, that's something that that the other person is, is engaging in. Um, and choose the easier one. And so when you I, when you formulate the computational problem that way, I think it does a decent job of showing exactly what you'd be asking the system to do in that right. case. Just in terms of processing power, I mean, that's really what you're saying, right? You say, here are all the constraints that I actually have. If I have a task to do, to have some utterances, if I look at the whole system, while there's so many constraints or so many problems I have to solve, I only have so much processing power and so much time to be able to do it. This is the best way to, to focus on it given the system. Is that a fair analogy to it's it, yep, that's basically it. And so give it right, so given that as a between processing power, time pressure, etc., uh, to burden the speaker also with um, attempting to to craft these you know, utterances that are as optimally efficient to comprehend, if you can put it that, if I can put it that way, um, is putting too much of a burden on that system in right. terms of what it's capable of doing. But it's easy. It, this is where a, a little more nuance is necessary because it we actually avoid ambiguity really, really well. Right. So how does that happen? It turns out that it depend the way that this the way that ambiguity ends up being. So, uh, so I, the argument is something like this, that there's different types of ambiguity. Uh, one type of ambiguity is what you might call grammatical ambiguity, which is ambiguity that arises because something about the linguistic features of your utterance lend that utterance to mean more than one thing. So the word... Um, this is the Groucho Marx uh, example, right, of shooting... shooting uh, <laughs> Shooting the elephant, I, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. What he was doing in my pajamas, I'll right. never understand. Um, that's right. So that ambiguity, you know, I just shot an elephant in my pajamas, uh, is an ambiguity that simply arises because the phrase in my pajamas can attach it to the linguistic lingo in two different places in the sentence. Uh, and uh, when... I don't need to go through the linguistics of it, but the words, the only way we figure out what the syntactic structure of a sentence is, is by inferring it from the order of words, and the order of words in that case doesn't strictly determine whether it attaches low or attaches high. Um, 
So that's a linguistic ambiguity because it has entirely to do with the linguistic features lending them, this particular set of linguistic features, those words in that order, lending themselves to two alternative interpretations. Right. Uh, but a different form of ambiguity that's important and that we are very sensitive to is what we sometimes call non-linguistic ambiguity or conceptual ambiguity. And this is where you have two things that can be described with the same label, but that's because they're very similar sorts of things or the same thing. And so, uh, you know, right now on this set, there are three lights. And if one of them started, if one of them had an issue, uh, you couldn't just say, you know, deal with that light without doing something to disambiguate which light that you're talking about. Right. It turns out that in that case, we're great. So there's a set of experiments that I did along with my former student, Bob Slevick, and a research assistant at the time, Aaron Rogers, where we had people, we would show them a display. So here's another situation of how do you get people to say the kinds of things that answer the questions that you're interested in. We showed them a display of pictures that had some target object that we were interested in, how our subjects described them a critical foil object, and then two filler objects that just made things a little more complicated. Right. The target object would be, say, a, um, a bat, as in the flying type of thing. Right. And then the critical foil object in one condition was a bat, as baseball in bat. you had baseballs with, with exactly. Um, in another case, it was another kind of bat. So, uh, sorry, uh, another bat of the flying type. So this would be a, a larger flying bat, and this would be a smaller flying bat. Uh, and then in a third condition, it was completely unrelated. So that was sort of a control. What right. do people call this thing in the baseline case? And so relative to baseline, do people avoid calling this bat more in the two cases where, oh, so sorry, we tell our subjects, describe the thing that we're indicating in a way that uh, someone who's looking at this display could know which of the four objects that you're talking about. And so if there was a larger flying bat, a smaller flying bat, and you call this thing bat, that wouldn't work because you wouldn't know which one it is. Right. When that's the case, larger bat, smaller bat, people are fantastic. They almost never call this thing bat. They always call it large bat. When it's a flying bat and a baseball bat, they are not nearly as good. They find that to be a much more difficult task to recognize that if I call this thing bat, my listener isn't gonna know that I'm not referring to this other thing over here that's also a bat. So that, we argue in this paper, illustrates an important distinction between linguistic ambiguity, so bat, Flying bat versus bat, baseball bat is a linguistic ambiguity because it's just an accident that these two different meanings happen to get mapped onto the same word in English. Um, that type of ambiguity we're not very good at avoiding because it requires us to do this additional processing. You know, I've got the word bat, that's a perfectly good word that for what I want to get across. Oh, it happens to mean this other thing, but yeah. I have, you know, it takes uh, too much computational effort right. basically to determine this alternative meaning that I'm not intending. Uh, that I haven't thought of at the moment that could be a threat, a threat of ambiguity. But when it's a large bat and a small bat, because the two things are similar to each other in meaning, that's actually something we're very sensitive to. Um, so, so what's going on? Why, why, do, you, why do you suspect cause, uh, that, that, that people are, are sensitive there? Because again, from a speaker perspective, does it make it easier for us somehow? Or are we all of a no. sudden concerned, so, about, concerned about you and uh, if we have enough time or something? How, how does that work? So the idea is that it also has to do with the way that the processing system works and unfolds. So as I mentioned, the sort of overall framework that most people in my field work with is that you start with this message, you retrieve linguistic features, you then sound it up. The, process of formulating the message is all about what are the individual features of meaning that I need to use to, to, to uh, have my intention successfully be realized. And so if my intention is describe this thing so that it's different from, so that I can distinguish it from this other thing, 
Um, I'm doing that at the level of picking what the meaning is that I'm trying to get across. Small bats and big bats are similar to one another in meaning, and that similarity is something that the system can use to say, oh, there's the threat of ambiguity here, there's a threat that the person's not going to know what I'm going to get across, and so I need to add additional information. And this is all happening at this initial level of deciding what you're going, what the meaning is that you're going to say, rather than what the words are that you're going to use. The process of going from the meaning to the words, that's where it becomes blind to additional features because the idea there is, um, okay, this is the meaning I want to get across. It's a, you know, this type of flying mammal. The word bat does the job for that. Uh, at the level of meaning, you're not allowed, you're not able to diagnose the similarity that causes ambiguity because the flying bat and the baseball bat aren't similar to one another. So you don't at that stage formulate the, the additional features that you need to distinguish the two because the absence of similarity at that level doesn't let the system recognize, oh, this is even going to be a problem in the first place. Um, so you just choose the word bat once you get to the linguistic level. Um, uh, that's what's, I guess that's sort of the, the, the general sure. idea. Here's, a, here's an experiment that I've never done. I've always wanted to do it. Uh, I just haven't had the people, the right people available to me with the right expertise to be able to do it. And so if anybody watches this video and wants to do this experiment, I'd love it if they would do it. Um, one of the ways that we seem to avoid ambiguous utterances in language is with pronouns. So pronouns are, are, are terrible threat, have a terrible threat of ambiguity because they basically, in English, for example, convey one, two things. What gender something is, he or she, um, and whether something's animate or inanimate, because you can use it for an inanimate object. Um, and one of the things that we know from other experiments that have been done is that an English speaker will actually avoid using a pronoun when there's the, a threat of ambiguity due to gen, the same gender. So if I do an experiment where, so this, these experiments have been done with Disney characters for whatever reason. So if I do an experiment where um, uh, Donald and Mickey are going down a hill and then Mickey is going to do something after that and you, you show them the first picture, describe what's going on, then describe what's going on over here in this picture with Mickey in it, mm -hmm. versus Donald and Daisy are going down a hill and now describe in this, this picture what's going on with Donald. In the first situation where it's Donald and Mickey, when people describe what's going on with Donald in the second situation, they will use he relatively less often because he could refer to either Donald or Mickey. Um, if uh, if it's Donald and Daisy, and now I have to refer to Donald, I'll use he more because he can't sure. refer. And that just sounds like a classic, wow, people don't want to use he in the first case with Donald and Mickey because you would get the wrong, you wouldn't know exactly who you're talking about. The argument I would use in that case is I would say, yes, that is what's going on, but the reason that the system is able to do it is because Donald and Mickey are similar in the relevant feature of meaning. Namely, they're both male, and male is a, is a meaning thing. Right. So again, from the speaker's perspective. From, from the speaker's perspective, the, the, the thing that causes the ambiguity is something that's, like I said, available at um, something about the meaning of these things, and not right. just the words that you use. Right. Um, whereas Donald and Daisy, they're more different in meaning, and so that cues the system, oh, those are different, so a pronoun is potentially sufficient. How would you test this idea? What you'd, what you'd want to do is go into a language that, doesn't, that has grammatical gender, that assigns gender to things that are, um, that are inanimate. 
So I don't know any of these languages, which is why I haven't been able to do the experiment. But if a chair sure. and table are in a particular language like Spanish, marked with, um, when you refer to those things by pronoun, you have to use a pronoun that in includes the grammatical gender of this item. Uh, the argument is that if you did an, an analogous experiment where you had two objects that needed to be described and then you have to refer to one of those two objects and they have the same grammatical gender versus having different grammatical genders, so a table and a chair perhaps have the same grammatical gender and a table and a lamp have different grammatical genders, that you wouldn't get a difference in pronoun usage between table versus chair and table versus lamp because tables and chairs and tables and lamps, it's not about the meaning of those things, that right. they have that gender. It's just a quirk of language that right. one gets male and one gets female. Right. And so the system at the level of meaning doesn't have access to the information that tells the system, oh, these things are similar enough to one another. That so you'd be able to separate the meaning from the actual grammar or the grammatical aspects. That, you'd be able to parse the, the, the two of those things. So as a researcher, it gives, to, to try to separate, right. is this a meaning level effect or is this a grammatical level right. effect? The sort of framework that I've been pushing over the years suggests that whenever, now let's make it a little broader than ambiguity, whenever some aspect of uh, what I'm trying to get across refers to a difference at the level of grammar, that that's kind of a black box, that the system, once it starts with the meaning, is now going into the grammar and saying, I'm just trying to do this as efficiently as possible, and I'm no longer paying attention to what might be easy, what my listener might need. Um, the work that I did to try to figure out what my listener might need, that happened at the first step. And right. so this grammatical gender versus biological gender is a way of trying to tease those apart, because biological gender is at the level of meaning, and grammatical gender is at the level of linguistic feature. I want to talk a little bit about grammar as, as a whole, as a concept, because my understanding of the conclusion of at least the paper that I saw is um, when you ask, well, how is communication even possible? I mean, how, how does this even work if, if I, as a speaker, am not fixated or primarily concerned with the disambiguation, if I'm just doing my thing on the productivity side, you have to be working like crazy as a uh, uh, as my interlocutor trying to understand, but how, how is that information transfer happening if I'm not fixated on that as, as the speaker? And my understanding is I'm doing my thing for all the reasons that you've said. Uh, on the receiving side, you're doing your thing, and grammar, sometime, somehow the rules of grammar allow for this, this conduit of information to pass because they impose some structure on me to, to, uh, to express myself in that particular way. So you mentioned before grammar is a black box, but grammar is, I can look at it maybe as an arrow or a black box with an arrow or something. <laughs> so, some mechanism basically through which this, uh, this information transfer is, is happening. Is that a, is that a fair, fair way to look at it? So immediately I start thinking, okay, and this is maybe follow-up or, or related to what you just said, the rules of grammar are different in different places. Mm -hmm. Languages are different in different places. Um, how much are we, how much are we saying uh, actually has to do with um, languages and cultures in which people find themselves immersed and how much is, a, is something standard that would apply to the human condition as a whole, if you understand what I'm yep. saying. Uh, is it possible to even measure, measure these effects and parse this? Should we be able to see more or less of these sorts of effects in, in different classes of people depending on what language they speak? So this framework, um, uh, is a positions itself at the level of this should be universally true. Right. It's um, it's not so much about. Um, so if there there are, you know there are profound differences in cultures with respect to communicative practices. There are profound differences in individual across different languages in terms of how they accomplish you know how they do what they do grammatically. 
what this framework is about is um, suggesting, um, given what a grammar does for a speaker, uh, the differences that we see across different languages should be explainable in part in, term, in terms of trying to satisfy the, the constraints that this, this framework suggests are operating. So let's see if we can use an example of this. So earlier on you asked the question, well, geez, if, if I as a speaker am relatively oblivious to the potential ambiguity of my utterances, how do we get a, how, how does we end up communicating with one another? Or you know, do, how do I avoid ambiguity at all? Um, and so the part of the answer to that question at the grammatical level is, well, you don't really pay attention to ambiguity, so you're not really avoiding it. How come communication doesn't break down at that point? And that's where, um, as you mentioned, the grammar steps in. The idea behind the grammar in this framework is this. So first, it's you know the word grammar can mean different things, and so in this context, what I'm referring to as by the grammar is the set of conventions that determine that certain sentences in my language are permissible, other sentences are not permissible, or certain you know imposing prosody in one way is sounds normal and is something I would do, and another way is unnatural and is not something that I would do. So we have a, a set of of rules, soft rules in our head that basically say, well, if this is the type of um, a meaning that you want to get across, and it has a subject and an object and an indirect object, then these are the grammatical options that you have available to you. And then eventually when you, sp you spit it out, you're going to have to use these words with a preposition of a certain type and so forth. The claim is that that grammar is shaped um, probably, this is speculative on my part, but probably by the language acquisition process, by how it is that we learn languages and when you're a kid and you're picking up on certain features of the language, or, uh, that it's shaped so that the ambiguities that exist are tolerable in terms of eventually getting your ideas across. And so here's the example that I try to use to illustrate this. And it takes advantage of cross-linguistic differences, which is kind of nice. So generally speaking, there are two sorts of languages um, in the world. This is a continuum, but it's good to sort of um, talk about it kind of as if it's a categorical distinction. There are what are called fixed word order languages. English is one of those. There are what are called free word order languages, and Japanese is an example of a free word order language. Uh, a fixed word order language and language like English, what that means is that what the subject of a sentence is and what the object of a sentence is is determined pretty much entirely by the order of the words in the sentence. And so if I say, uh, the cat chased the dog, you know who's doing the chasing and who's being chased because the cat precedes the verb and the dog follows the verb. Right. Languages like Japanese actually don't work that way. Um, what they do is they have these things that are called case markers, they're little suffixes that you plunk at the ends of words, and those, those suffixes tell you what the role is of that word in the sentence. And so in Japanese, you wouldn't say, the cat chased the dog, what you would say in a, in a sort of a gloss, I don't know the Japanese words, so I'm gonna have to, to do a sort of a, a mixed version. Um, you would say, cat ga dog o chase, and the verb goes at the end. And ga says, the cat's the chaser, O says the dog's the chasey, and then the verb is there at the end. Because these suffixes tell you what the subject is and what the object is, mm -hmm. you don't, you're not constrained to saying cat, ga, dog, O, chase. You can say dog, O, cat, ga, chase, and it still means the cat chased the dog, and Japanese speakers do that. It's called scrambling. So these two word, these two court types of languages, again, this is sort of a, a, a continuous distinction, but uh, work in these two different ways. 
it turns out that these things tend to trade off against one another. Fixed word order languages like English don't have these suffixes that, that tell you what the subject and object is. Free word order languages like Japanese tend to have these suffixes that tell you what the subject is and what the object is. What you don't get very, very rarely, if it happens at all, um, are languages that are free word order without case markers. So you wouldn't have a language that says, if you want, you can say cat, dog, chase, or you can say dog, cat, chase, and those things both mean the cat chased the dog. Why doesn't such a language exist? Because it would be intolerably ambiguous, right? Mm. If I could say cat, dog, chase, and it could mean either thing, then I can't get, um, get the idea across to you that I'm trying to get across. Right. And so within this framework, the idea is that grammar ends up allowing a speaker, or enforcing, if you will, options for speakers, to on speakers, that um, will allow them the choices that will generally get across the idea that they're trying to get across. Uh, within English, an example of this is that, as I've mentioned, that is optional in lots of sentences. There's uh, different kinds of that's that are optional. There's one type that's not, which is a that before what's called a, a subject relative clause. And so you can say, <clears throat> the man that I liked, so this is an object relative clause. You can say the man that I liked, you can say the man I liked. Both of those are grammatical. grammatical. Uh, but you can say the man, the man I liked went skiing. The man I liked went skiing, so that's right. So the, you have, if you've been, ended up saying a complete sentence. So you can say the man I liked went skiing, the man that I liked went skiing. Right. Um, a subject relative clause would be something like the man that liked me went skiing. You can say the man that liked me went skiing. You can't say the man liked me went skiing. Right. So that, that's not optional. Why is that, that not optional? One explanation, yeah, here I am with the that's again. One explanation is, if I say the man liked me when skiing, the man liked me sounds so much like I'm saying the man liked me, that that ends up not being tolerated by the grammar. The, the grammar says, again, we need to get the design features right here, right. that if people started to say that, it would be dis communicatively disruptive enough, it would disrupt communication enough that people would say pardon, or they would boggle enough that that would eventually get selected out of the grammar. So it's, it's a sense of, again, selected is a good word because it's, it's almost a sense of the grammar arising through some evolutionary process. Yeah. We're, we're predisposed as speakers to do something, and in order for communication to happen, the grammar seems to have to evolve according to at least some constraints uh, to, to, to make sure and, and diminish, uh, diminish ambiguity to, to the extent that, uh, uh, that communication can actually be possible. Mm -hmm. right? is, that, is, that a, is, that, is that a fair way to look at it? Mm -hmm. let, me, let me ask a somewhat different question, because as I'm reading this, I, I, I think to myself, okay, so Vic has this idea about what's happening with most of us when we're speaking. I go outside my door and I hear people talk in this particular way, you know, I go down to the cafe and, I, and I'm imagining now, after having read your paper, I'm thinking these people aren't actually paying attention to what, whether their interlocutors are bothering to understand, they're just talking away, uh, grammar's taking care of things and, and the guys on the other side have to do some work to, to parse the actual meaning that, mm -hmm. uh, that comes out. But then I think, well, a couple things. I think, well, hang on. That's probably true. I, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. Okay. Uh, that that's fair enough. That, that seems reasonable to me. Um, but when I listen to people who uh, are very well-trained public speakers, they're being very, very deliberate in the way that they're using language. And I think they are thinking about 
uh, very clearly uh, and effortfully uh, as to how to communicate things. Or um, if I'm listening to somebody who is a poet, who is playing with the idea, or, or if I'm, I don't have to be listening to the poet, I can be imagining a poet uh, in, in her room playing with ambiguities, playing with structure of the language, being, again, in a very effortful way. I'll grant you, it's not something that happens uh, uh, automatically, but it's something that is, is perhaps a higher level function. And, and let me be even more personal and say for myself, who has spent uh, quite a bit of time recently thinking in another language and being forced to think in another language, I am, uh, I am thinking very much according to uh, the structures of grammar and how one should basically convey this message. What, what would it be like as the listener? Can the listener actually understand the difference when I say this as opposed to that? Um, and, I'm, and I have found, and I don't know if this is common, I suspect it probably is, that that has also impeded my ability to, to speak English. Or, or when oh, I speak English, I find that I am now thinking somewhat differently. I'm trying to speak a little bit slower. This whole idea of efficiency, mm -hmm. everything is efficient, I have to get it out there. I'm wondering, I'm wondering how much of this is actually cultural. It's taken me a long time to, to get around to this question, but you see I'm trying very hard to be as explicit <laughs> as I possibly can from your perspective. <laughs> I wonder how much of this is actually cultured, uh, dependent upon culture, to the extent that one can say, well look, that's all true, and what we normally mean by productivity is we have to get our messages out there, and we have to make sure that a big you know, woolly mammoth doesn't come and eat us, and all, all the rest of this kind of stuff. But, in a civilized society where you train people to be cultivated thinkers and, and, and develop a reasonably uh, penetrating vocabulary and being able to distinguish between shades of gray and so forth, then part of what we mean by cultivation and education is actually transcending these, these constraints. That's, that's, that's my response to it. So I'm, I'm saying, okay, you're saying something universal, but on the other hand, maybe we should actually be taking this and recognizing that that part of being civilized, cultivated individual is to transcend this. Does this make any sense at all, what, what I'm saying? It does, and I think that, so I, I think there might be a couple of ways that um, to bring these two ideas together, that what you're trying to get across with the sort of approach that me and my colleagues have been using in this area, which is that, um, so when you speak of the poet playing with language um, and poets playing with ambiguity, it's one of the things that you can really use effectively in, in certain creative forms of communication. Um, or not even a poet, a, uh, an administrator who's trying to you know, convey a message to somebody and... There's so very rarely an overlap between those two. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. <laughs> so I chose the other end of, uh, of some continuum, I'm not sure which one exactly. Uh, that. You know, so if you've ever needed to craft an email very carefully because it's on some very sensitive subject or you're, there are other constraints that are operating, what you do, um, and the poet I assume is doing the same thing, is you actually try out the options, right? You'll actually write a sentence and you'll be like, okay, or you'll write a paragraph and then you'll reread it and reread it and make sure it's getting across what you need to get across and no more no less. And sometimes you'll take advantage of ambiguity to, you know, sure. make it so that you don't necessarily convey something that uh, you feel ought not be conveyed. What that illustrates is something that I think there's, a, there's another component to this process, which going back to the cognitive psychology of it, we call monitoring. And so monitoring is an aspect of language behavior where you 
you can think of it as hearing that voice in your head that is going to be what you're going to say before you actually say it aloud. And there's good evidence that we, in fact, do monitor our speech and we can catch it just before it comes out of our mouth, um, at least if we're not under some big time pressure. Or if, when you're giving talks, this is very hard to do when you're giving a speech because um, there you're worried about lots of other things. But, um, but in normal conversation, this is something that happens. And so the, the really good evidence of the, from, about this comes from a really clever experiment that was done in the 1970s. Uh, my field got off the ground, the study of language production got off the ground mainly through the study of speech errors. This is the initial way to try to get, a, get how do we figure out how this system is working when we can't force people to say certain things. These really, these geniuses in the 70s, um, a woman named Vicki Frumpkin passed away a number of years ago, Merrill Garrett, a few other people, uh, recognize that when people make speech errors that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of systematicity in what's going on. And so one type of speech error that people make was made famous, perhaps um, intentionally, by the, the Reverend Spooner. And so we call these Spoonerisms. Right. And so this is, um, you know, well, his, some of his were saying the, the queer old dean instead of the dear old queen. And right. uh, there's a number of these, you hissed my mystery lecture instead of you missed my history lecture. So a Spoonerism now is something that, that uh, is in our field. It's when you swap the initial sounds of two words in an utterance. And people do this unintentionally all the time. A lot of people were suspicious that Reverend Spooner was doing these on purpose, at least sometimes. But, mm. um, and so this uh, uh, Bernie Barr's, Motley, I don't know Motley's first name, and Don McKay did these experiments in the 70s where they, you can elicit these Spoonerisms using a priming technique where you give people pairs of words that they might end up saying, and then they get a critical word, and the pattern in the previous words makes it so that they might swap the, the two sounds of the words and, and create a Spoonerism. And what they did was they had people say these phrases where they could um, end up eliciting an inappropriate, a socially inappropriate expression. And so the only one that I can use without feeling embarrassed about it is um, uh, hit shed. Right. So if you spoonerize that, you end up with a phrase that's not, you ought not use in polite company. Um, and so now you can ask the interesting question, does the fact that this spoonerism will be socially inappropriate, does that make it any more or less likely that right. you'll, say, you'll do it? And the answer is yes, it does. You are less likely to make a spoonerism that creates something that's socially inappropriate compared to not. So there's a check somehow on this. So there's a check that makes sure. And here's the thing that really clinches that it's something that happens by you hearing it in your head before you say it aloud which is uh, the other thing they did that was brilliant was they measured what's called the galvanic skin response, GSR. So you put sensors on people's skin that measures basically the sweat level in your skin um, and you sweat more in situations that are a little higher anxiety. And what they showed was that not only are people less likely to, to produce these spoonerisms that are socially inappropriate. But it's correlated with higher levels of, of? When they don't do it, their galvanic skin response is higher. Huh as if they momentarily constructed the spoonerism, right. recognized, ooh, this right. is not something I want to do, spiked their GSR, and it's incredibly saying. sensitive. I didn't, these things must be very uh, Yeah, it's very, moment very to moment, sensitive. basically, yeah. And so, uh, so that was, that's knockdown evidence that we actually do formulate our utterances, right. hear them in our heads before we say them aloud, and, 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 um, and correct them if it's something that's not what we want to say. Right. Um, that, as a process, is a is a rather brute force way of getting around everything that I've been saying in this conversation so far. That yes, you have an idea. That idea enters the grammatical black box and tries to pick out the linguistic features that can be used to get the idea across. That gets formulated into an utterance. 
what, how I've been talking so far is a situation where you then spit that utterance out, but right. then there's this monitor process that right. can hear the linguistic form before it comes out of your mouth, and if it thinks that there's something really wrong with it, fix it. Um, so what I think that poets do when they're playing with the sound of language to try to get across something you know, additional to just what the words are saying, what the meaning is, or what a contract writer is doing is putting that monitoring process in overdrive. And when you're doing it, when you're proofreading something, that's just you monitoring your own production behavior to see if it says what you want to do, what you want it to say. Whether you could have that extend to broad cultural differences that, you know, one cultural group that the, you know, the British are probably famously known for being careful about how they say things. Some British. Some British. I mean, the, fo the football hooligans are typically not very... <laughs> that's, that's probably right. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, I suppose we can consult other cultural stereotypes to think of, your, of countries where people are not, are considered to be more blunt in what they get across. Um, Perhaps you could pin that difference on, in, in cognitive psychology terms, on the degree to which this monitoring mechanism is put to use before people say things aloud. Right. Um, there's good evidence that um, whatever this monitoring process is, that it is what we call resource sensitive. So when times get tough, it's something that, that you'll dispense with because you're trying to deal with other things. So you'll, you know, one claim would be that you monitor less while you're driving and talking sure. and, and otherwise. Um, but it would be reasonable to say that you know certain cultures might place more of a value on things that would affect, uh, would allow them to be more careful about exactly the way that phrasing. Or, or, or individuals can be in two states over a longer period of time. When you're driving your car, you might be in maybe natural mode, if you will, and when you're giving a talk, uh, you will obviously be monitoring what you say uh, much more, and you will be maybe in unnatural mode or whatever whatever nomenclature one, one wants mm -hmm. to use. Let me ask you uh, another question, which is related to some of the conversations I've had recently. As I mentioned, I'm doing this series on psychology and mm -hmm. cognitive science, and I've talked to a, a wide range of people um, who straddle this uh, divide, as it were. Maybe it's not a divide. But anyway, I, I've talked to many people who use um, all sorts of modern technological techniques, diagnostic techniques like fMRI and so forth. And it seems to me this would be very, very interesting to be doing these sorts of uh, experiments with people and monitoring their brains with fMRI. Um, all, you've, you've done a tremendous amount of work developing all these different tests and so forth. Have, have you thought of or have you, have you been involved in fMRI type testing to get a clear sense of where in the brain these, these processes are actually happening? So, um, so I'm involved with one pro so just last year I was um, lucky enough to be able to be on sabbatical for a year and so I spent um, not that there's anything wrong with San Diego, by the way. <laughs> I, I came back for the winter. <laughs> I was in San Diego for January, February, March. I, I made that choice deliberately. Um, but uh, so I spent two months in New York City before that at NYU working with a woman there named Lena Pilkinen, and she studies a different. She uses a different brain monitoring technique, something called MEG, which stands for magnetoencephalography, um, and so that just measures the brain by measuring the actual magnetic field that gives, given off, that's given off by the brain moment to moment. Um, and then I came back here for three months, and then I spent two months in Boston at MIT working with a woman named Evelina Fedorenko, and she studies, um, she uses fMRI to study brain activity. Um, so, and in both cases, we set up projects that are, that are ongoing. Um, so, 
it's really clear at this point that the fields of, of behavioral science, broadly speaking, and cognitive science specifically, are going through a kind of a, a neuro revolution. That where the degree to which um, neuroscience techniques are going to be important for doing um, investigations of, of cognitive things um, is increasing, and uh, it's just going to become more and more important. There is a real challenge with using fMRI with uh, the types of questions that we ask. So fMRI, I think, has been very successful in many areas. Um, one area, for example, is in basic perceptual processing, basic visual processing. Um, and so people have used fMRI in humans to understand the way that visual areas work in the back of your brain uh, in ways that or were not available before the, the advent of fMRI. Uh, I have a colleague, a guy named Adam Aron, who studies um, the control system in the brain. And so this is something that you know makes it so that you can inhibit some behavior that you ought not to, you know, to do. Like uh, you know, if you're walking across the street and a car suddenly you know come, you see one bearing down on you, you suddenly stop your your walking behavior. Um, there's a system in your brain that's responsible for that, and he's been using fMRI very successfully to get a foothold on how that system works. Um, language has a couple, the way that language works in the brain has a couple of features to it that make fMRI challenging, in my view. One is uh, that it's complex and multifaceted. So language involves meaning, it involves grammatical form, it involves sound, uh, it involves pragmatics, so reasoning about what other people think and how they think. Uh, so any act, of, any act of language trying to isolate each of those things is, is going to be difficult. Um, if those things are done in, in different ways by the brain, that's going to make it very challenging to potentially figure out exactly what is going on in some specific question, like whether you know whether there's a part of the brain that's sensitive to ambiguity. Well, you're going to have to be you're going to have to be able to take into account the fact that these all these other possible systems might be relevant and changing along with the, the ambiguity question that you're asking. And the second reason I think that um, is that that it's going to be tough to study language using techniques like fMRI is because of what we call neural plasticity. So one of the things we know about the brain is that the way that brain, the, the way that psychological functions map onto brain functions can differ from individual to individual. They can differ within an individual that if I have a stroke and suffer some brain damage, my brain will reorganize just to the extent that it can to recover some of the function that I used to have. Um, and one of the things about neural plasticity is that it's the brain is relatively less plastic or less variable from individual to individual in perceptual areas, like how the visual system works, and is relatively more plastic in higher level areas, like language, language and reasoning and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, and so studying using fMRI, which basically has the ability to tell you where something is happening in a brain, to study something that might vary a lot from individual to individual poses a challenge. And presumably it might have also varied over their lifetime as well. And it, it can vary within an individual over, over his or her lifetime. That's almost certainly true. Um, the, so Ev Fedorenko at, at MIT has a way of dealing with at least one of these problems, which is um, a technique that uses what she calls, um, actually developed um, by a woman she works with, Nancy Kamisher, called um, functional localizers. And so that allows you to at least say, what we're going to do is on a subject-by-subject -subject basis, we're going to haul each person into the magnet individually. We're first going to measure some, we're going to use some task to measure some um, function of interest. 
And then we're going to measure, use other tasks to see whether for that individual subject does this other task use the same parts of the brain as the first task. And so in Ev's case, what she's been doing is to use um, a language localizer. So give people a bunch of sentences that are grammatical versus a bunch of sort of gibberish non-word strings. Figure out what parts of the brain light up more for the grammatical sentences compared to the gibberish. Now let's look at some other tasks and see if they rely on some of the brain regions, same brain regions. And so uh, she and I, along with some other collaborators, are working on a project to use that technique to say, all right, let's find out on a subject-by-subject -subject basis what parts of the brain are doing language function. Now here's another thing that we know that happens when people produce language. It's called, um, <laughs> these things all have, have jargonistic names in our field, but it's called cumulative semantic interference, that if I ask you to name a, name a sequence of pictures one after another, and unbeknownst to you, these pictures come from a common category. So you name a, a sheep, and then five pictures later, you name a cow, and then five pictures after, seven pictures after that, you name a horse. You'll name each successive picture of an animal more slowly than the preceding one. It's a type of a learning effect that happens. Hmm. Um, and so now we can ask that ask question, is that a language thing or is that a non-language thing right. by using this technique? First we localize the language functions, then we have them do this task and see all right, is it language areas that light up with this with this in, with this increasing interference effect, or is it not language areas? And how much variation are you getting in what language areas are from subject to subject? A decent amount, a decent amount. Um, uh, and because the other thing that this technique does that's quite nice is it frees you from the need to have a contiguous area all be a, a, a putative psychological function. Right. So, you know, it's pretty unlikely that sure. there is a dedicated chunk of of I was going to say meat, but I suppose that's a little crude. A dedicated chunk of brain in my head that this whole ball of brain is responsible for language and nothing else. Yeah. And so by using a technique like this, it's it's free the tech, to the extent that you have resolution of the scanner. It's free to find specific what we call voxels within that region that are language, whereas a neighboring voxel might not be sensitive to language. Um, and so when you allow that much freedom from one subject to another, you get, you know, potentially no two subjects will be the same in terms of, of what parts of the brain show language function. You mentioned the transformation in cognitive science and, and psychology. Um, it seems to me as an outsider, as the ignorant objective individual, <laughs> as it were, um, that there are all sorts of, well, there, there, there's one principal rift, I, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, my perception of the principal rift is, is this. My perception of the principal rift is that those of the hardcore cognitive science persuasion seem to believe that there is no fundamental difference between the brain and the mind. The brain causes the mind. The, brain, the mind is, a, is, is our own personal subjective manifestation of brain states, whereas those who, uh, who, uh, who on the other side of the rift, let's just say that without uh, giving any names, um, don't, don't believe that claim. That is, not, that is to say that it's not the case that they they believe the brain has nothing to do with the mind, but they are of the view that there is more to heaven and earth than merely brain states, um, and uh, and and therein lies a, a great deal of uh, possibilities and different different tracks. So, uh, and typically, the the first category of people use the word brain. They don't even use the word mind. Mm -hmm. And the second category of people use the word mind. Mm -hmm. yep. um, that's, that's, so that's my perception of you, what's going you on. You perceived it very well. Okay. So, so then my, my next question is, which side which, of the Which category of person am I? <laughs> uh, I guess I should just come out and say that I'm the second category of person. Okay. 
um, and then um, hopefully explain why that that's a, I think that's a, a, at least a reasonable stance to take. Um, so p uh, my view of people in, of the second category is that uh, we are all what you would call, and, and so now I'm going to sort of veer into philosophical terminology. So it's, it's, it's time, actually. We've, this is the philosophical moment. Right <laughs> this now. is right now. Perfect. <laughs> um, so me and people who have the set of beliefs that I do are all physicalists. So we believe that every mental function does correspond, sure. is not just corresponds to, is a physical function. So you're not a Cartesian dualist or anything So I'm like not that. a Cartesian dualist, for sure. <laughs> um, but we are a kind of dualist. You might call him a, a functional dualist, where, uh, where we feel as that, that, that this position is that even though Every, you know, usually in the philosophical lingo, you distinguish what you call mental events and physical events. So every mental event is a physical event, is identical to a physical event. Um, but the proper characterization of how a behavior is organized isn't at the level of physical events. That if you want to form the categories of mental things and you try to do it at the physical level, that you won't do it. Now, what does that mean? That basically says, Let's say that I could figure out what is the physical pattern that corresponds to dog? What's the physical pattern that corresponds to cat? What's the physical pattern that corresponds to mouse? All of those things are small animals. Um, and so at a level of, of mental description, if you will, we have that similarity between those two things. Right? That, that's a category of things. The argument here is that if you had the three physical patterns that correspond to those three mental patterns, there wouldn't be a physical thing necessarily that they have in common that corresponds to them being animals. Okay, let me, let, me, let me back up and try to get very concrete so that I can understand what you're saying. When you're talking about physical pattern, I, I'm assuming, and that this may be incorrect, but I'm assuming that what we're talking about is you say to me, Howard, think of a dog, then I think of a dog, and then there is something going on in my brain which is made of physical stuff. And presumably electrical interactions among neurons. Right. And what you're saying is that pattern or that brain state yep. is not the be all and the end all of my mental representation of a dog. Or is that or is that not That's what you're not saying? That's not what I'm saying. Okay. It is the be all and end all of your mental representation of a dog. Okay. But um, the physical characterization, just the description of that of your of the patterns that correspond to dog in terms of electrical activities. So my brain state brain states. Okay. Um, that those brain states aren't um, aren't there uh, in aren't they, they aren't the way that they are to correspond to the mental categories that are relevant. So let me do it try to do another example of this. Um, Right, so, so I, get, I mean, I get, going back to yours, it's not sufficient to just talk about dogs to try to get across this notion. You have to talk about things that, that have some mental organization and things that have some physical organization. Okay. And the claim is that the mental organization um, won't necessarily correspond to the physical correlation. Um, uh, uh, I've lost track of the term that I used for it. Uh, description of it or characterization of it. Uh, a little more philosophical lingo might, might be handy. Here. Sure. So, um, so like I said, people on this side of the divide, we all consider ourselves to be physicalists. Right. We all believe that, right. that the brain, that mind is brain. Um, but there's an important distinction between what we call type physicalism and token physicalism. 
Type physicalism is that if you have a brain state that corresponds to a particular mental state, that that brain state is in some physical sense the same um, across, say, individuals and across time. So the brain state that corresponds to dog in my head is the same as the brain state that corresponds to dog in your head. And it will be two weeks from now. And, it, and the brain state that corresponds to dog in my head will be this, oops, I shouldn't hit the mic. The brain state that corresponds to dog in my head uh, will be the same as the brain state that corresponds to dog in my head two weeks from now. Um, in some relevant physical characterization, is, is the idea there. Token physicalism says dog as a mental state does is the, identical to dog as a brain state, but this requirement that it be the same between me and you, this requirement that it be the same for me now and two weeks from now or 10 years from now, does not hold. And is this because of plasticity of the brain, that maybe it'll two weeks from now it'll be different, or that we're all different and so forth. Exactly. But these, these hardcore guys on the other side, I think they'd acknowledge that, well, don't you? I don't. I don't. This doesn't strike me as 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 being. This rift seems to have disappeared. So, uh, um, I think they would acknowledge it. Um, I actually just had a, a really um, interesting discussion about uh, on this exact issue in my hallway outside my office about a week and a half ago. Um, they acknowledge it, but I think that it's easy to overlook the ramifications of, of the, this distinction for um, how we do cognitive neuroscience. Um, because if it's the case that ultimate, so one way to think about this is in terms of, a, of the notion of reduction. So can you reduce what we, an organization, you know, certain type of organization at the mental level to an organization at the physical level. Right. And say, you know, uh, everything that's an animal in terms of different mental events corresponds to this particular physical pattern in, in, in right. the brain. Well, I implied you could by using the word brain state. So I was begging the question right there, at least with, with the idea of a dog, right? I mean, is that right? Yeah, um, I don't think you were begging the question because I think that. Like I said, I do think that dog is a brain state. That okay. there is no other. There's there is nothing other than that. Okay. Um, it's just that if you attempted to draw out, you know, so we can we can talk about we can talk about what nouns do in language, right. and we can talk about what nouns do in language by drawing a bunch of of rules that aren't about neural states or electricity or anything, right? And we can write out you know nouns go into noun phrases and so forth. Sure. So the question of interest is, you know, I firmly believe that every noun in, that I know in my language corresponds to a brain state in my head. Could I rewrite the rules of language that describe what you can do with nouns in terms of rules of, of electrical interactions in the brain? And the contention of people like me on this side of this divide is that's not in principle possible. Hmm. And the reason it isn't is because um, the, the, well, actually, it's, it's a sort of a way of approaching the, the, this aspect of it. Ultimately, the, I mean, here's a way of, I think, um, not, maybe not demystifying it, but I think reinforcing the, the notion that um, it's almost like what you want to do is you want to think of the causal arrow in the other direction. Most of us, when we're trying to think about the fact that the brain is the mind, is that the brain does things and that causes us to have the, the mental life that we have. This way of thinking of it says that can't be true in any sort of strong sense because 
hopefully during the course of this conversation, you've uh, you've learned some particular fact that you're that has you know that you're going to know for a, you know some period into the future. That's a a mental thing that happened, and so somehow that fact that you've learned has to cause a series of brain changes that makes it so that that is something that ends up being in your head for the longer term. So at some level, unless you think it's all billiard balls, right? Unless you think that what happens is that if I told you a new fact, like, um, you know, I was born in Winnipeg, um, that corresponds, you know, I was born in Winnipeg as a sound wave that impinges your eardrum that causes the, the three bones to move in a certain way that then causes a bunch of brain changes in a certain way in a rather, and it's all happening at the level of brain. Um, unless you think that's what, um, that it's all deterministic in that sort of way or stochastic, random, um, you have to have a way that the way that you, you're thinking about something, the function that you're trying to accomplish with a, with a psychological, um, with a behavior, can change the way that the brain represents that thing. I'm not articulating yeah. this very well. No, I'm no, afraid, no. I think I think it's fine. But I'm so let me let me throw aside um, my my cloak of impartiality. Okay. <laughs> and say that uh, that uh, that I'm on the first camp. Okay. And say, here's how I would respond to what I think you're saying. But let me take a let me take a let me take a more concrete analogy because I feel more comfortable when I deal with a concrete thing. So let me talk about something like the proof of Fermat's last theorem. Okay. okay? So there's this thing called Fermat's last theorem, and, and it's a very very high level thing. And there's this guy Andrew Wiles who came up with the proof, as we all know. And you either are familiar with that proof or you're not familiar with that proof. Mm -hmm. And if I go through and I go through this rigorously, which I certainly haven't done because I'm, I can't, or at least at this stage of my <laughs> present knowledge, and go through it super rigorously so that I understand every line of what Andrew Wiles has mm -hmm. done, then I will have learned something and my brain will have changed just as it would have presumably if I you know, watched some stupid television show as well. It also would have changed. Yeah. Um, and, 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 but the, I guess what's bothering me is this, this in, in principle notion. So I would have a brain state before I would sit down and learn about mm -hmm. Fermat's last theorem. And then I would have a brain state after Fermat's last theorem. And this would be horrifically complicated. And I don't think it's ever going to happen in like a, a gazillion years that people will actually be able to map this thing. But in principle, which is what we're talking yep. about, yep. I would be able to have my brain state before, my brain state afterwards. And my brain state afterwards would involve all sorts of other things that I've done, you know, gone out and drank some orange juice and, and had all sorts of other things by the time I, I, I finally understood Fermat's last theorem. And, and if, if you can map this brain state completely, which is the, the supposition that you can do, right? In principle, it should be possible to do. If you could map it completely, and if you had a complete understanding of neurophysiological principles and the laws of physics and all and the laws of mechanics and maybe even chemistry, you know, you know, all that kind of mysterious stuff, then the claim is that you should be able to, to, you know, if you have the initial state, you should be able to predict the final state at some level, right? According to these laws. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so, or, or, yeah, or, right. or, so, so you have these two brain states, tremendously complicated, right? Yep. And I guess my problem is, if you believe that, there's nothing else there. However complicated it is, however, you know, however untenable it may be, however unrealistic it is that we would ever be able to, to meet those assumptions, 
if you can meet those assumptions, and it seems like you've got one brain state here and you've got one brain state there, and I understand those principles, so then I can say, okay, you, Vic, you come at this thing with another brain state, but somehow, you know, I can, I can watch you trying to work with Fermat's last theorem, and that's incorporated somehow in this. Maybe, you know, incredibly difficult to extract, probably never be able to extract somehow, but again, in principle, it's possible. Do you, do you understand what, I, I do, what, I'm, what, what I'm saying? And so, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll say that in the limit, so I think that in the limit, it might be possible to do this entirely physically, but to do that, you will need to know what would practically be impossible. Fair enough. Well, so, okay. so. <laughs> but even, perhaps even in a gazillion years. Sure. Because the idea is this, the, the state of your brain after you've learned Fermat's last theorem, uh, versus before is going to, the, the physical state of your brain is going to be a function not only of the set of facts that, that make up um, the solution of Fermat's last theorem, but all of the other facts that impacted what your brain was like before, right. the, the whole context in the middle, the whole context at the end. And how good it makes me feel, the meta stuff. I'm gonna feel great and all of a sudden my brain's gonna change after, so. But whether you had a glass of orange juice right. is going to affect right. that, that set of brain states Absolutely. And, so and in principle, because the initial state matters, everything that you did before in your life, since in principle conception, is going to matter because the, the state, the physical state of your brain as you began this process might, will, would have been different, not might, will have been different if 10 days before you didn't, you know, do some relevant behavior compared to something Yeah, else. but I'm assuming I can take a snapshot at some time of my brain. So to some extent, I don't really care what I did before. I'm assuming I can set the initial conditions. Uh, this is a huge assumption, and I don't think it's possible, quite frankly, but I, I, it's possible in principle. That, that, I guess yep. that's my, that's my uh, argument. Um, just like you know, these old Maxwell Demon things, and people talk about tagging every single molecule and yep. so forth. So the, the, it's at that level, yep. I think, that, that the, we're having this argument. Yep. Yeah, well, discussion. Discussion. <laughs> argument in a positive sense. <laughs> um, but I think if you, if you take a snapshot of the brain and you can tag everything um, at, at one particular time, I don't care what happened before. I don't care about conception. I can say I have a photograph of your brain state at this particular time. I, that's my that's my claim, and I don't think that's going to work because I think that the way that your brain ends up solving the problem of encoding that course it's going to take from before yeah. to after that the way that your brain is going to say because your brain basically has to solve a problem here. What your brain's trying to do is how do I encode this knowledge that's coming in through your yeah. sense, sensory organs, right. and the the solution to that problem could be in part affected by what happened before it. I think I know what you're saying. What you're saying is, well, maybe all of that can actually be captured statically with And you're with saying it, 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 it probably can't with the brain, brain state. Maybe you're right, yeah. Maybe it's, it's, how, do you, how do you capture, I, I guess, so, so, mm -hmm. so to, to argue from your perspective, as I hear you talk, I guess the claim would be, okay, maybe there's a technique to understanding Fermat's last theorem that you had to learn back here. Doubtless there would have been to, to, to appreciate it. Um, and somebody else, it, it's not clear that that would be manifested in the photograph of the brain state, that I could imagine two different situations. One person learned this technique and somebody else didn't learn that technique and just looking at the brain state wouldn't necessarily give you that information. Is that, is that the that's kind the, of... That's the position, but now as you're phrasing it that way, I, I can see what your position is too. Oh, yeah. I, can, I can actually, <laughs> if, you, if you had that, that Maxwellian demon that knew every single possible physical state that was relevant, it would, 
uh, it could, I can see how that would actually allow for all of the context that was previous to be encoded in that snapshot so that, have we convinced each other to the opposite well, it, of our it, original it, positions? It, maybe. It, it, it seems to me that there's, I guess, in sort of the, the analog in physics would be some level of what, what they call degeneracy, right? Like it's yeah. possible, yeah, it's possible right. to reach one state from a variety yeah. of different paths or, or, you know, that at some level are semantically equivalent. Anyway. No, that's right. If there's a many to one mapping from yeah. previous states to this current snapshot. Yeah. Then of course you can't disentangle it. And you can't figure out where you were. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the, the possible indeterminacy that would make that true. Anyway. Um, so this was very interesting, but I think I think it was too philosophical. I, I haven't done that yet. I haven't been too philosophical, but I think maybe this went a little further. A couple more, couple more things I want to ask you, uh, which uh, have certainly uh, impinged on my uh, on, on my brain a little bit since since I've been familiar with your work a little bit, and that is um, in, in this story of of a message that I have to convey to you. And I'm the speaker, and I'm doing my speaking thing at a productive rate, and you're trying to do your uh, parsing and understanding of it, and grammar's taken care of. Uh, somehow this big black box of grammar is making sure that the message is decodable, as it were. Um, there seems to be this assumption that you have two people talking, and there's this message out there, and then we use language to encode that message. And it seems to me there are people who have a somewhat different perspective and they say well hang on it's not as if there is a message or there is content which is independent of language that in fact language itself frames the the, the way we think about the world so language is this fundamental step or even filter as it were that we we learn about the world through language and thus it is it is impossible to imagine a thought or an idea independent of language so my first question is, uh, do people actually subscribe to that? Yes. Uh, and, how, uh, and, and how would you respond to them? So this is a, um, a long-standing issue in the, in the general language sciences. Um, and it's often called um, the, Worf hypo the Worfian hypothesis or the Worf-Sapir hypothesis, uh, which is an acknowledgement of both of the people that sort of are credited with, with raising this as an issue. Um, uh, how Worf sort of phrased this, I think, isn't quite as as relevant or interesting to talk about as sort of what I think the, the overall set of issues ends up being, which is what is the relationship between the fact that languages use particular devices to encode thoughts and different languages use different devices and in different ways, um, and the way that thought processes are, are able to unfold and work. Um, there's one extreme that I don't think anybody believes, um, although it's actually intuitively, it, 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 there's an, it, it has an intuitive appeal to it, which is that we literally think in language. Um, that if you didn't have language, you wouldn't be able to think at all, you wouldn't be able to have you know, reason about things or anything like that. Um, that, I think, is patently false. Um, so, it, and I think the fact that it's false is illustrated by the fact that if we thought in language, then we wouldn't ever feel that some linguistic expression of our thought was inadequate. 
right? If, 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 I would, if the only way that I could think was with the words and sentences in my language, and I, all I need to do is transcribe that thought into those words, um, and that would be the thought itself. The fact that uh, my, one of my former advisors, a woman named Kay Bach, uh, would just point out, you know, the fact that you have meanings for things that you don't have words for illustrates this. She always point to the, the thing at the end of your shoelace that allows you to thread it through the, the eyelet, right? That's a thing, and we know it's a thing, but you don't have a word for it. So uh, it's, it's untenable to say that the language that you use to represent that thing is the thing at the end of your shoelace. That's kind of not what, what it is. Um, so we, I think nobody thinks that we think in language. Um, the other extreme point of view is one that I think a lot of people subscribe to, and I think I subscribe to it, but I'm being convinced away from it, which is that the way that we think and reason is fully independent of that every culture, regardless of how radically, how radically different ways their languages might work, that they all, that everybody's capable of thinking exactly the same way. Um, and, but I think what ends up being the, the connective line between these two extremes is one that recognizes that because language has the ability to represent meaning, it becomes a tool that we can use to think, to reason, to solve problems, and so forth. And if that's true, now you have the ability for differences in different languages to impact the way that you reason and solve problems, and so forth. Um, so one famous way that this debate came out is um, through differences in languages and what's called a subjunctive construction. So a subjunctive construction is uh, English has one, so you know, if it were raining, I'd be carrying an umbrella. And so it's a way with one efficient utterance of saying, describing an implication, there's, you know, there's an X that implies Y, rain implies me carrying an umbrella, but not X. X isn't true, it's not raining. Um, other languages don't have this. So I think Chinese, for example, doesn't have a single subjunctive construction. The claim is, I don't speak Chinese, so I can't verify this firsthand, but the claim is that to express the same thing, you, kind, you basically have to say something along the lines of, if it's raining, then I'd be carrying an umbrella, but it's not raining. Mm. Right, so you have to actually sort of um, deny the, the right. um, antecedent in a subsequent expression. This led to the conjecture on the part of, I can't remember who the author was, that the ability to reason counterfactually might differ between right. speakers of English who can phrase in a simple sentence a state of affairs that aren't that aren't true isn't state isn't true state of affairs that isn't true, um, but nonetheless, if it were true, it would convey um, have some implication to it. Um, and so a series of experiments were done just to suggest that this might be true. Someone else came along and said, it looks like there's some difficulties in how these materials were translated from the speakers of English to the speakers of Chinese. And my sense of that micro debate, that specific debate, ended up being that, no, there's not strong differences in counterfactual reasoning between English speakers and, and Chinese speakers. Um, and that's, I think, because in the limit, a Chinese speaker can say, if it's raining, then I'd be carrying an umbrella, but I'm not. But it's not raining, right? So when you ultimately need to do the reasoning, you can fall back on other strategies and so forth. Right. But there's a, there's a difference between not being able to. That's a very That's right. strong statement. But yeah. as as opposed to somebody saying, language increases the proclivity of thinking in this particular way, or the orientation of thinking in this way, or I mean, if somebody's thinking in one language which has a certain structure which, uh, uh, which may make them use hypotheticals more, or which may, I, I think, well, 
I, it doesn't matter what I think because we're, we're, I'm asking you what you think. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it seems it seems like it 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 makes a case for uh, for impinging on one's way of, of 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 thinking, let alone just expressing thought. Yeah. So this is often. Um, described as what you might call habitual behavior. So it, you know, it might not be that I can't think counterfactually because my language doesn't have a subjunctive, but my habitual way of, of, of considering things might be influenced by uh, the fact that there's some device in my language. And do, you, do you believe that? Do you believe that that's the case or not? Um, I, I'm trying to think of what the evidence is on this. Um, so there's a, one of my colleagues here at UCSD is a woman named Lyra Boroditsky. She's in the cognitive science department, and she is more toward the the way that your language works influences habitual thought patterns side of this debate. And one example that she uses is the fact that different languages, language communities, cultural communities will describe, for example, the passage of time differently. And so. Uh, in English, we describe the future as ahead of us, generally speaking. We describe the past as behind us. Uh, other cultures do the opposite. They'll describe the past as in front of you and the future as behind you. Um, and she has done a series of experiments where she argues that that can affect, for example, how you... I mean, it, it does actually strongly affect how you do certain things. So sure. She has this... Um, this wonderful graphic of uh, Nestle, I guess, did, a, did an ad campaign some time ago uh, where they showed uh, a series of, of, of a, a, a human infant going to a toddler, going to an adult, uh, and it went from left to right in this sort of way. Uh, but when it was marketed in Israel, that or because it went from right to left, to left right. so it actually suggested that this Nestle product would lead your kid to, to <laughs> reverse develop. Um, so you know the the fact that we engage in certain sometimes language related habitual behaviors does affect how we interpret things and so forth. Um, and so I I my sense is that where the debate has gone is from a, a, a entertaining of quite strong hypotheses of ha your language having features that not having features would prevent you from being able to do certain things to a, str a strong point of view that said it makes no difference what your language is. And now I think we're getting closer to the, you know, what's what is actually in the middle, which is that um, language can build in certain ways of organizing how you think about time, how you think about, um, you know, events and so forth um, that can then affect moment-to-moment uh, -moment behaviors um, that if you, you know, if the way that you needed to reason about some time process was compatible with the way that your culture tends to use a metaphor for it, then that might make it a little easier for you to reason than if it's incompatible with that. So I think the evidence is pretty compelling on that. So it ends up being, an, uh, you know, one of these things that's kind of annoying when it's kind of, you know, in the middle someplace. I think an, an analogous situation like this is with the innate component of language that uh, there's an extreme point of view that says that, you know, uh, You're hardwired. Yeah, that so, you know, Noam Chomsky and Steve Pinker represent two different views of this innate point of view that says that your language faculty to a large extent is determined by a genetic endowment and, you know, one elegant argument on this side that I suspect isn't true, even though it is quite elegant, is that that going back to a selection metaphor, that the features of your language are selected from a from a finite inventory that is this genetic endowment, in the same way that uh, that you know a, a, a 
I'm trying to think of another example of a, of a claim that the immune system works right. like this. At the other extreme is, you know, language is actually just, a, just something that a highly practiced skill that is like chess. If we if we played chess as much as we did language, we would have the same, you know, we would consider chess to be as, as remarkable and possibly innate as we consider language to be. Um, again, both of those extremes are probably not true. I think most people sort of think about this more than uh, once or twice will acknowledge that there's you know innate constraints on the way that language works but right. there's a very strong sort of that the organization right. system is also sh strongly shaped right. by learning experiences that you have over your life um, but an interesting issue is on this sort of meta scientific issue is the extent to which you actually um, the extent to which we need the <laughs> this is going to portray folks who take extreme points of view in a hopefully a favorable light that you need favorable light. yeah because yeah. you need because the claim here is that oh methodologically you need to, to set the limits as to it were. set the limits to represent yeah the extremes of this right. um, uh, and that by having somebody you know people like Noam Chomsky and Steven Pinker on one side claiming that things are extreme you know that the innate component is 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 a strong component of it. Um, my late colleague Liz Bates was, I think, probably viewed as the, a strong proponent on the other side that language structure, to a very large extent, is right. is inherited from the environment. Sure. Where it paints them in a in a favorable light is that they're being wrong <laughs> for the sake of framing a debate that you know they don't see it that way. No, but, of course not. <laughs> uh, and you know, hopefully, Steve Pinker and Noam Chomsky don't end up watching this. <laughs> oh, hold on a sec. Now, 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 I'm starting to lose respect for this whole process. I mean, you you got to go on record with these things and say, say say what you actually believe. I mean, it's not an ad hominem attack. You're you're attacking views. You're not saying. I mean, these people are obviously very in, in, intelligent, thoughtful. And Individuals, you're not, you're not saying anything to the contrary. But so far as I know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's it's the extremity of the views or the perceived extremity of the views that we're. we're yeah, although if I if I picture Steve Pinker watching this, he would probably say, hey, "I'm not that extreme." Is <laughs> probably how he phrases it. Of but. Anyway, uh, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to uh, end with a couple questions. Mm -hmm. um, so you alluded to one example of future work earlier on mm. uh, when you laid down, threw down the gauntlet and said, if anybody's listening, uh, please. <laughs> oh, that specific experiment. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, mentioning a specific experiment. Um, other, other ideas, more general ideas, directions in which you're now considering moving? So where I see a lot of the field going at this point, um, a number of us are seeing this. This isn't a, <laughs> this isn't a crystal ball thing. Um, a confluence of things are pushing the field in an interesting new direction, which is uh, the notion that um, this is actually kind of relevant to this innate versus um, learned debate on language structure, is this an, an, a, a belief that our language knowledge, in fact, is shaped in by ongoing experience in a way that uh, we hadn't quite appreciated before. Um, and like I said, there's a number of factors that are pointing in this one direction. One of these factors is that uh, there's a whole sort of um, thread in cognitive science that has risen to prominence in the last 10, 15 years that views a lot of what human beings do in terms of their behavior patterns as, um, as optimal in a way. Um, that, and so the common thread in a lot of this research is to take some 
take some demonstration of where a human was behaving irrationally and show that, in fact, they're behaving rationally when you take into account all the other factors that might be, might be relevant, might be going on. And so in the language sciences, this has been sort of unfolding in a way of saying that, um, that the way that we, I'm trying to think of a, a, a good example of this, but the way that we understand language, the way that we produce language isn't just some, you know, isn't just some fixed grammar that gets into our head and stays that way. It's that um, as a way of kind of responding to contingencies in our environment, um, our language system will change and adapt. Um, this is often uh, framed in terms of what's called a Bayesian framework, that uh, when a system is, when a, when a language comprehension system, say, is trying to estimate, oh, here's a piece of language, might, what might that piece of language mean? It's taking into account all of the prior information that it has, and given that prior information, what's the most likely interpretation of this thing? And from a production perspective, you can imagine sort of a, of a reverse process along those lines. Right. And so if the system really is optimal in that way, how does it become optimal given all of the variation in, across time in a person's language life and right. you know, across different people? And the idea is that you pick, you end up having the system be that way because it's quite sensitive to past experience in a way that, that tweaks it so that um, it can adjust its prior probabilities. So this is some sort of an evolutionary argument at some level. Evolute, but not genetic selection, sure, no, no, obviously. No, no, but, yeah. it, but, um, but in terms of a sort of a selection of, right. it, it's almost a tuning argument, right? Um, and so my lab is, is moving in this direction as well, um, spending more time sort of looking at uh, what are the ways that you can show that there was some learning event in a, you know, that happened in, a, in your recent past, that's now going to change the way that um, you uh, end up describing something in the future. Hmm. So one aspect is the sort of optimal notion, the second aspect is the sort of experience-dependent notion of you know, learning, recent experiences causing changes in the way that you're, you, you do language, you process language. Um, and then a third component is the degree to which this ends up being context-sensitive. And so here I can talk about one set of studies that's going on in my lab. Um, so. One of my graduate students had this idea that ended up coming across robustly, and uh, which is that, so one of the things that we do in our field is we study situations where there's a, a, a given message that you're trying to express and there are two reasonably good alternatives that, that can be used to, to do so. And that, that versus no that is one way, but there's other versions as well. So you can imagine a, a, a card that has a line drawing that shows a, a man putting beers into a cooler. And if you set the conditions up right, um, so what he's done in this experiment is this. He'll have two people, uh, an experimenter and a subject. I tapped the microphone again, sorry. <laughs> he'll, he'll have two people, an experimenter and a subject in, a, in the room. Um, and they'll take turns describing cards to one another. And so he sets it up so that there's 12 cards that I have in front of me as an experimenter. Each of the cards can be described in one of two ways. The man is loading beers into a cooler. The man is loading the cooler with beers. Um, the woman is giving an apple to the teacher. The woman is giving the teacher an apple, et cetera, et cetera, for 12 of the different cards. So I take my turn as the experimenter. I describe the first card to you. You find it in your set and you put it in the pile. I describe the second card. So, I, so let me make this concrete again. First one I say, you know, the man is loading beers into the cooler. And you look for that picture and you put it there. The woman is giving an apple to the teacher. You find the one and you put it there. And I do this for 12 sentences using 
what we call three different alternations. So the first one is what's called a locket of alternation. Man is loading beers into the cooler. The man is loading the cooler with beers. Second one is what we call a uh, ditransitive alternation. So the woman is giving the apple to the teacher. The woman is giving the teacher the apple. And then the familiar one is the transitive. So active versus passive. The alarm clock is waking up the boy. The boy is being awakened by the alarm clock. So you get 12 of these in a row, which is quite a bit. And now your turn. It's your turn to do the same thing. So you get those same 12 pictures and you describe them back to me. So and am I influenced by, is this what you're And that about? ends up being the question is, yeah. for a given picture, do you end up using the same structure that right. I end up using? Which, if we show that, that would be pretty, you know, it'd be surprising to some extent. Because one of the things I said earlier in this conversation is, we have quite poor memory for exactly how a, a sentence was phrased. So if nonetheless, across the several minutes that it takes for me to describe this entire set of pictures and for you to then describe them back to me, and the interference of these other 11 sentences being part of the same set, if you nonetheless still have enough of that description that you end up saying that using the same structure back, even when I didn't ask you or anything like that, that would be surprising, but that is what we find, that you're about 10 or 15%, right. 20% more likely to use the structure I used compared to a new one. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. It shows yeah. that you've picked up on something in the environment, a, a relationship between something that you were asked, I, was, I described for you, um, and the structure that you used to describe it, and encoded that, and that influenced your future production behavior. And so now the, the, the quest is, what is this sensitive to? Like, is this something that, that your brain is doing robustly, like if, if I describe these 12 cards to you and then you go away for a week and you describe the same 12 cards back to me, will you, you show the same effect? If we do it in a different room, will, that, will the effect go away? Right. Right. There are so other people around maybe. If other people around, uh, if it's exactly the same picture versus you know we tweak the colors or we tweak exactly. Um, and that makes it sound sort of like a fishing expedition, but the point is to recognize that our behavior you know, your behavior of describing a picture, a picture in a particular way is going to be sensitive to some whole set of contextual features. And uh, the, the extent to which it is or isn't sensitive to particular features probably is going to tell us something if your brain, if the way that your, your language system is working is somehow optimized, right? it has recognized, okay, this type of contextual feature is relevant, and so I'm going to take that contextual feature into account right. when I... Try to be more sensitive to some things and less to others, presumably. Presumably as a function of the, those things' relevance to... The learning process. The learning process, or what, it's, what it would be good for me to know how a sentence is going to come up. So, um, and then a, a, another factor that is relevant to the sort of wave that we're getting in, in the field is, um, is, to use a buzzword, big data. Um, so um, in some ways, the language area has been able to, to sort of do the big data thing in the cognitive sciences um, more easily than many other areas because it turns out that there are massive databases of language everywhere, right? So newspapers are all printed online, and we can just right. use that as a database of language. Right. The, the World Wide Web is a, you know, a huge database of, of language. And with the right tools, you can now go in and measure you know, to what extent are particular subtle patterns actually coming out in, in these massive databases hmm. of language. Um, and if one of the questions that you're interested in is, do people tend to repeat structures that they've recently heard in some particular context, you can ask, answer those questions using these, these right, various there's a lot of data. It's just the question is how you parse it and how you, how you try to isolate various factors that might be responsible for the learning process, but that's... 
that's your problem. Two, two issues, yeah. One is parsing and the other is enriching. So, you know, a, a sequence of words in a database doesn't tell you what the structure of that sentence right, is right. and what the individual categories, and those are often the way that our hypotheses are phrased. Are, are, are phrased. And so, um, so you need to not only be able to figure out how do you pull the pieces of data out, but how do you then, in, if, it, if there is a whole lot of it, how do you um, then tag it so that you're mm -hmm. coded for the relevant variables that you're, that you're interested in. Cool. Anything else you haven't asked? I actually want to go or back. Talked about? Yeah, I want to go back to the uh, to the um, category one versus category two of, sure. of mind brain sure. issues just for a sec because yeah. I think there was talk the other day in our department that I that this is what ended up leading to this roaring discussion in, in the hallway um, that I had with with some colleagues. So this is a really interesting talk by somebody from UCLA who, oh, see if I was a British person, I wouldn't want the institution to be mentioned. But yeah, but you're so, not. <laughs> Nothing wrong, you're not, you're not saying it's a crap talk yet or anything like that. No, it was a great talk. Yeah, um, but I'm gonna end up saying that I have con sort of concerns with the approach that the person person. Yeah, this, so, this is the professional world, you're supposed to, right? <laughs> I guess that's right. So it was a really interesting talk by this guy from UCLA who um, is describing this project that's related to the National Institutes of Mental Health here and NIH um, of looking for um, the brain uh, basis of different sorts of psychological disorders. And so the idea is that if we can come up with a good taxonomy of, 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 the, of factors that are relevant to psychological disorders, and then we can sort of look at what are the brain systems that correlate with the relevant features of these, these mental disorders, that that's going to help us get a foothold on trying to you know, understand these mental disorders and potentially even cure them eventually. And so one hypothesis is that we can analyze the efficiency of, of transfer of, of um, brain signals from one part of the brain to another part of the brain, correlate that with these different features of mental disorders and see the extent to which it can, it can explain or at least be, it seems to be related to those features of mental disorders. So it was a really interesting talk, a really good, good idea, but afterward the discussion I was having with my colleagues is that I sort of see that as fundamentally wrongheaded. And the analogy that I tried to pull out for them was, was this. Um, and it relies on an age-old analogy that, that is in the cognitive sciences field relevant exactly to this, to this rift. Um, so we all have our, our computers these days, and this isn't quite as bad in our smartphones, but one of the things that we have with our computers that's a problem is they get these disorders, and they're called viruses. Right? Uh, and so these disorders cause massive problems with the way that our computers work. Now, if we wanted to cure our computer of a virus, the sort of category one type approach would be, okay, let's go into the physical makeup of the computer and try to find what it is physically about this computer that's causing this problem. Right. Um, I don't know that that would be a very efficient way to go about doing it because the nature of the virus is relatively independent of the physical factors that correspond to what that virus is. Instead, what a computer doctor would do is go in, look at the software level, and try to isolate what this thing is, and take that program and, and delete it using software. So the analogy is, is similar, that when it comes to mental disorders, if somebody has some condition like ADHD, autism, something like that, it's possible that there is a sim relatively simple, relatively tractable physical thing that we could point to and say, oh, this is the physical thing that as is 
corresponds enough to this mental disorder that if we deal with this physical part, the mental thing is mm. going to fix itself. But it's possible that it isn't at that level at all. It's possible that, at least for many of these disorders, that it's at this functional level that the problems are happening. And perhaps a nice intuitive example of this would be PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. PTSD has some genetic hardwired component to it. There's a, there's a diathesis that leads to that, sure. but then there's a stress event sure. that causes it. Sure. That stress event then is instrumental in the way that the disease, on, that the condition unfolds and plays out and so forth, and you know, reliving the event, trying to compartmentalize it in certain ways and so forth. To tr it, on the analogy to the virus idea, to try to figure out what's going on with PTSD by figuring out what are the, you know, what's, what's the physical thing that we can point to that corresponds to this might not make as much sense as what was this traumatic event how is it being remembered at a at a psychological level, at a mental level? How is it now playing out in terms of you know being compartmentalized, being relived, and so forth? So we can try to isolate it. Right? It's if you you know if you believe that a computer, a digital computer with a hardware and a software level, isn't some magic you know some something with a soul that somehow man manages to sure. magically rewire the ones and zeros on the computer so that. Um, so that it ends up having the, the behavior that it does. The idea is that the, the mind is doing the same thing, that, that the functional, the way that the, the system is playing out functionally is what ends up having the physical system on, you know, represented the way that it is. I don't know if that works as an analogy. But. So I can give a response as okay. a category Great. one person. Um, <laughs> you're, not, you're our token category one um, And I guess, I guess there would be a two-stage response. So the first, the first thing is I would say, it depends on how you define the system. So there are some things that would be causal agents that would be at the, at the level. I mean, there are two things. So one is, is the limits of your system and the other is emergent properties, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so I could imagine a causal agent like a virus being a, a gene, say, right, which is at the right level. And then you can isolate that because it's at, at the right systems level that you're talking about and say, well, that's the faulty thing and that's causing some molecular function over here. And, yep. and so we can look at some causal chain and, and, and point to that to try to remedy something. You know, there's too much of this thing which releases a protein which has an inhibitor and you know blah 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 across the synapse. Yep. Or you can say to use your analogy with you know uh, with the with the computer that the virus you can't just look at the ones and zeros because you see the ones and zeros changing in this weird way, but there's some higher level process. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would say well that's that's a that's analogous to all the different issues with Reductionism, right? I mean, we all know that it, that if you if you want to understand biological processes, it doesn't really help to look at things from the order of quarks. Mm -hmm. you, you have to. There are some things that happen at a sufficiently high level, and and, and so by analogy, I think a virus. The letter O. Oh, that is, guy's just smashing into that car. That's my neighbor hitting my other neighbor's car. <laughs> wow. I wonder if he got distracted by what's going on here. I don't know, but I certainly got distracted by that. Anyway, so, uh, so, so, so the virus would be an emergent property. You'd have all these problems with, like, how does that happen? But it clearly is, right? It's a different thing on the systems level. The, the virus that corrupts your computer mm -hmm. um, it is, is virtually impossible to explain in terms of the hardware of your computer, as yes. you're saying. You have to somehow look, go up, take a systems view and say, this is an emergent thing which happened. So, so it's conceivable that um, uh, we would be able to explain how the zeros and ones are corrupted 
uh, we, would, we would know that the zeros and ones are corrupted, but the explanation for that would have to be at some, uh, uh, some emergent level. Um, anyway, so, and, and then the other point that I wanted to make is when you talked about post-traumatic stress disorder, if I'm, a, if I'm a category one person, which I so obviously am, um, I would say, well, again, that depends, on how, that, that's, depends on how big your system is. So yes, absolutely, the fact that you were shell-shocked or you had, some, you had some stress event, that has to be incorporated within all the data that I have, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and that, too, is quantifiable. That, too, can be, you know, can be written in some whatever, reductionist code or as part of our system, you, sorry, you, you evolved, yeah, you evolved all the way over here and, and the environment and this, the, the, the impingement of the environment on our brain is part of the system and definitely has to be taken into account and that's just, that can be reduced to an expression of that. Again, but, but I, I do think there's a difference as we're, as we're talking and flailing our arms around, I, I do think there's a real difference and I'm sure you, you agree and, um, um, on this, between these philosophical discussions about possible this and possible tagging everything and what's mm -hmm. possible in principle mm -hmm. and how you actually go about treating these things and what you should be doing. And when we're talking about things like autism or ADHD or schizophrenia or, or, or whatever, post-traumatic stress disorder, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's reasonable to make the assumption right at the beginning, whatever our philosophical category one, category two proclivities may be or orientations, um, I'm thinking, at least for me, maybe you think differently, that's moot in, in, in the real world of actually trying to do something. We have to, be, we have to be looking at the higher level and the lower level simultaneously. We have to be trying to do the best we can to see what's actually working. And, and, you know, from a pragmatic perspective, I'm not sure it should make any difference. Yeah, I, I, so I do agree with you. And certainly um, it is, you know, it's a, it, I think it's a general safe approach to, to scientific investigation that you want, you know, all levels, you know, all, all hands on deck. You, you don't know how a situation is going to end up, how an understanding is eventually going to emerge. So one reason I, th I, th I feel like it's important to try to get these ideas across is because I think that there is a tendency to um, to have a, I'm going to use a potentially strong term, but to have a sort of a biological chauvinism about this. To say that a physical slash biological explanation of some psychological phenomenon is has some scientific um, uh, Privilege over a the superior to, superiority to right. a, a merely psychological characterization of it, um, and I can understand where that comes from. That um, that actually comes from I think what, I saw a great talk when I was a graduate student by um, by John Searle. It was more sort of a almost a sociology talk where he wanted to argue that Cartesian dualism to use. Point issue you brought up a long time ago, Cartesian dualism is alive and well, and sort of not and not just in you know certain quarters where perhaps some of us would be um, not so surprised to see it, but just sort of an everyday folk discourse and you know the idea of the, the basic intuition that many of us have that a shopping addiction is different from a heroin addiction, right? Is a perhaps a reflection of this Cartesian dualism that the former is something that happens in your, you know, it's just shopping, it's a behavior, you should be able to, whereas heroin is a physical substance that can come in there and, and change things. Um, so I suspect that that's where a lot of this comes from, is this idea that, that the domain of thoughts and ideas and behaviors um, 
are malleable in a way that, that physical influences are, are not. Um, but I think that seriously considering what exactly the mind is as a fun as a functional system and how that in fact if if you take the point of view that the mind is a functional system is what determines the physical organization that it's it's not that the physical organization is the way that it is to give rise to the function it's the function that determines what the what the physical system is like that if you take that seriously then that chauvinism doesn't have as much of a, of a strength now, you end up, I think, being able to do more of an all hands on deck thing, saying, mm -hmm. "Let's figure out first. Let's figure out both at a functional level how things seem to be operating and what's causing what to happen, at the same time that we look for biological correlates of these things and see if there's also a way of getting a foothold on it down there." So that that's kind of, I think, the reason to to bring it up. Great. Vic, I want to thank you very much. It's right. been, a, been a pleasure. It's been a very enjoyable experience. Oh, thank you. It has been, it's been a, I, I, the feeling is mutual. That was a lot of fun. It was very, very interesting. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Ellen Bialystok, Uta Frith, Greg Hickok, and Martin Monti. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.